crime in me. I've diagnosed some people. I think it's been pretty accurate. Definitely done my fair share of psychiatry work. I've prescribed a few pills, you know. Crime in me. responsible for the things that come out of our mouths. We are not experts, although we may claim to be, so don't take anything that we say too literally. We are not laughing at the crimes, we are laughing at each, each other! other. <laughs> Welcome um, to another episode of... To this week's episode of Criminy! God damn it, one Crimony. day we'll get it right. I know. Welcome to Criminy! For sure. Welcome to Criminy. We're your hosts, Angela and Matt. It is hot as balls out here. I'm melting in my chair since we have to turn off all fans and interference noises. Yeah, so you're welcome, everyone. I'm literally sitting in my underwear, drenched in sweat. (laughs) (laughs) Brings me back to the days when we didn't have air conditioning in Sacramento when we were children. Yeah, fucking Sacramento. Mom set up the box fans to blow on us while she spritzed us with water. (laughs) You gotta do what you gotta do. It's fucking hot. Shit. Alright. So this week, um, we have two cases. Angela's maybe a two-parter. I might have to do a two-parter because it's so fucking long. And I hope it comes off as I intended it to. It was really interesting when I was researching it, but I don't know if I (laughs) captured it. We'll see. Okay, but since you're going first, we'll just yeah. stop it when we've reached, like, ten hours, and then we'll do the second part. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds perfect. We'll aim for ten hours. Okay, good. <laughs> Whew. Okay. So, my case is, uh, well, you'll see once I get into it, but I feel <laughs> like there's a lot to talk about in regards to who done it. Ooh. Okay, so I hate listening to like whodunits, but they're so fucking interesting when you're researching them. You're just like, I've got to do yeah. it. Yeah. Or like the yep. did they do it? Did they? Know. Who oh. done it? Okay. Oh, all right. Cool. So I got information from abcnews.com, um, www.freesandymegler.com, um, thecron.com. <laughs> Ooh. So, I'm going to tell you a story about Sandra Megler. Okay. Um, Okay. Jamie and Sandra Megler were the American dream. High school sweethearts, married, living in a nice house in northwest Harris County in Houston, Texas. They were members of the Jehovah's Witness Church. They always are the American dream, aren't they? Always. uh, Oh. (laughs) (laughs) that's okay i mean you know they had their thing i think he was like maybe a little you know red flag but whatever uh, church is always a red flag to me but people some people need it um i think he was like a Mm -hmm. i don't know that he was like a super higher up in the church but he like you know did some sermons and stuff and like people like they were a well-known couple people really liked them they were always super friendly they had a daughter that was off to college at this point, um, and they had four little dogs. Uh, oh. And like I said, everyone that knew them said they were a happy couple. 
They never saw them argue or fight. Always seemed very good with each other. Sandra had a history of illness and medical issues, including rheumatoid rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, bone mm-hmm. bone grafts in her hips, and eventually a Ooh. bilateral hip replacements. I think she had like two hip replacements. And uh, thirty four years of it sounds like what both hips were replaced, y- right? Yeah. Um, so she walked with a cane sometimes. Oh. And she had a history of 34 years of documented epilepsy and memory issues. Holy fuck. She just got, like, all the bad shit. Yeah, and during, you know, their marriage, Jamie never faltered, and he always took care of her, never complaining, was always willing to help her out. Seemed like a very doting husband, never made her feel bad about, you know, being impaired. I guess at one one time... She had had a seizure so bad that she was left partially paralyzed on one side of her body, so he had to really help her out during oh that God. time. She eventually regained use of that side of the body, but um, just to show that, like, you know, there was a lot happening with her, but he always seemed willing to help out and never made her, you know, ma- never made it a deal. Yeah. It was just like, this is my wife, I take right. care of her, whatever. Right. Okay, so on December 22nd, 2012, the couple, who are now 57 and 52, they were celebrating their 32nd wedding anniversary. They went to their favorite Mexican restaurant and had a good time. They stopped by the CVS on the way home to grab some Sprite and Coke for mixers so they could continue celebrating at home. Oh, hey! (laughs) Once they got home, they made some drinks, got some strawberries out... Ran a bath. Uh-oh. Now, they had one of those baths that was like a huge jacuzzi-type bath that two people could fit in. Yeah, yeah. With the jets. Yeah. Their bathroom was huge. Like, you know, the bathroom Shit. even had the bathroom even had its own walk-in closet. So, like, that, that, right. that was like apart from, like, they had a master bedroom closet and then a walk-in closet in the bathroom. What the fuck? Why? What? big place. Heck. Oh, it's in Texas, though, right? Yeah, so big houses. Everything's huge in Texas. Everything's huge in Texas. <laughs> big tubs. So they got in the jacuzzi tub and had some drinks, and they talked for a few hours. They talked about their daughter. and the- In the tub? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> it was like a hot tub. Did it stay hot for long? Gee, well, I'm assuming they would, like, turn the hot water on, drain some. I don't know. That was my question, too, like, how did it stay hot, but... It's, but that's what they said. They were in the tub for a few hours, just chatting and talking about their daughter and how happy they were and making future plans and, you know, (laughs) eating their strawberries, drinking their drinks. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And then at one point they heard the dogs barking outside. So they were like, oh, we should bring the dogs in because there had been... The neighbors had been complaining about the dogs barking all the time. So mm-hmm. so Jamie mm-hmm. got out of the tub. He went downstairs to let the dogs in. And okay. Sandra said that she she was in the tub still. And it was taking Jamie longer than she had expected to Uh-oh. let the dogs in. So she decided she wanted to see what was going on. So she went into the closet because that's where she kept like some of her clothes and her lotion and stuff so she wanted to like lotion up and put her clothes in one on of the multiple closets yeah Ew. <laughs> it was her lotion closet where she just had shelves and shelves of lotions that's so disgusting <laughs> oh, speaking, speaking of, of lotion, lotion 
Humblebee Herbal just put a lotion on their website and it's super good. It's like a non-greasy formula. It's all natural. It absorbs really well. I don't really like lotion and I I use it because it's super nice. Yeah, I don't like lotion because I don't like being greasy, but I tried it the other day right. and it was very nice. It absorbs very nice. It's super nice. Yes. And you can pick your scent and you don't even need a whole closet full of lotions. This is the only one you're going to need. <laughs> Humblebeerable.com. Check it out. So she is in the closet putting on lotions. Lotioning, lotioning, lotion. Is this going to be her alibi that she's putting lotion on in the closet? <laughs> it couldn't have been me. I was lotioning. Look how smooth my skin is. <laughs> I couldn't hold a thing. It slipped right out of my hands. <laughs> Ooh, good point. I hadn't even thought about that. Mm. So that happened. Yeah, that's gonna, happening. And then I'm gonna and then I'm gonna skip ahead <laughs> okay, a little bit. Okay. So yeah, let's get out of the closet, please. Okay. <laughs> Jamie had planned to host a dinner party, a holiday dinner party, with his brother and his brother's family the next day. Okay. So they were expected to arrive the next day. So the next day comes, Wait. and I said I'm pausing. She's lotioning, okay, okay, and okay. then we're cutting scene. <laughs> okay. Cut the scene to the next day. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. 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 <laughs> Okay, so she's been lotioning for like 13 hours. <laughs> <laughs> well, they can they can tub for like 12 hours. They can lotion for 13. Yeah, it all true. makes sense in their house. I mean, when you've got the time to jacuzzi and lotion. <laughs> so the next day, the relatives arrived at the home on the scheduled date of the dinner, but they were mm-hmm. surprised that the front door was locked and no one was answering when they were knocking. Ooh. ringing the doorbell no one's answering so jamie's brother herman checked the back door but it was also locked and nothing could be heard from the inside the brother then went to the attached two-car garage where the garage door on the right side had been left open did it say what time they got to the house it was around four thirty. okay then the garage part of the garage door was open yeah so the right side had been left open or like unlocked okay Inside the garage, the brother found a closed but unlocked door leading to the kitchen. Okay. The The brother went inside that interior door, and then he unlocked the front door for his family to come in. And I guess they were the type of family that, you know, would just, just kind of in walk house. into it. Yeah, just yeah. walk into each other's houses. And so he did, he thought it was weird, but he thought maybe they had stepped out for something. Right. So he opened the door and was like, come on, come on in. Let's all just hang out in the living room until they come from wherever they are. Oh, Herm. If only you knew. <laughs> but they were like a little bit confused. Like, where did they go? They were expecting us, but... Yeah, kind of rude. I don't know. It's kind of weird. Yeah. So they sat in the living room and just kind of chatted for a bit. Until they started hearing some muffled noises and, and eventually muffled screaming. Ooh. So Herman went upstairs and he saw that the bath, the bedroom was ransacked with drawers pulled out. Things were everywhere. He, he followed the muffled screaming noises until he came to the bathroom mm-hmm. closet, which had had a chair leaning against the door to shut it, like under the knob, right. kind of keeping it shut. Right, right. Once he removed the chair and opened the door, he saw Sandra tied up on the closet floor. As he was untying her, he heard a scream, but this time from his daughter, Marisa Campos, who had followed him up there and was looking for the couple as well. She, she's like an adult child. <laughs> she, uh, she had, op- uh, I don't want like, like a toddler, cr- you know, walk over. Anyway, she had opened the master bedroom closet and found Jamie nude, tied up on the floor of the closet, 
and he had been stabbed 31 times <gasps> and beaten. Um, it said that he had about 50 injuries total on his body, including the stabbings and blunt force trauma oh, to the head. Oh, my God. Police were immediately called to the scene. Yeah. Sandra's memory of the events, events that took place after the bath were not that solid. She said she remembered her and Jamie in the tub talking, and then they heard the four dogs barking outside. So Jamie got out of the tub to bring the dogs inside for the night. Uh, She remembers him getting out and leaving the bathroom. She remembers waiting for him to return. When he didn't come back right away, she got out of the tub and went to lotion herself up. (laughs) She's like, good, he's gone. Now's my time to secret lotion. Secretly moisturize. He thinks this... Skin is natural. Ew, what? Um, uh, you know. <laughs> you mean he thinks the skin is naturally so youthful looking? Exactly. But really, it's lotion. She's just moisturizing. Moisturize, everyone. It's important. <laughs> and then that's all she remembers. Okay. She's in the closet, lotioning up. That's all she remembers. So here... So the only room in the house that was messed up was, like, the upstairs, the bedroom. Yep, the bedroom and the bathroom. Okay, because everything else looked fine. And then the other thing is, like, I don't know, I feel like if you're, you know, your partner's gone for a while, you maybe would get up and look for them before you lotion, just to, like, make sure everything's okay and know that you can always lotion in your closet when you need to. (laughs) No, no, that it's always there. No, I I mean, I think from her, what she was saying was that she wanted, you know, wanted to get dressed but she has to lotion before she gets dressed. Well, it's part of her bathing routine. I'm just saying, so think, like, grab a robe her... and look, you know. Right. I don't know. Right. I don't know. Right. I mean, there's holes to be poked in both sides of I mean, this, the, but the so. other part of it is, I guess, like, if you don't really think anything's wrong, like, oh, maybe he stopped. You know, he's walking around the house naked to check on the dogs. Maybe he stopped for, like, a refill of his, like, drink or something. And maybe, maybe it's, like, or not maybe... a big deal. Maybe because you've both been kind of drinking, you don't really notice how long time, how much time has gone by, or you're or it not could really be like, thinking. Oh, I think it's been a long time, but I don't know. It's like fine. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, and like she had said, when they got home from the restaurant, there was no sign that there was anyone there. Right. And so she wasn't on guard, and her husband's just going to let the dogs in. May- you know, like you said, maybe he's making a drink. Maybe he's feeding them. Who knows? Right. It okay. wasn't that alarming for her to go down the stairs, but alarming enough that she wanted to get her clothes on so she could check it out. Okay. But that's all she remembers. Yeah. Authorities noted that drawers had been pulled open, jewelry boxes had been rifled through, and a wallet and a purse had been overturned on the bed. Uh-huh. Police found a white blouse, towels, and a kitchen knife in the jacuzzi tub. Ew. Where... <laughs> Ew. Um, police also found a loaded gun hidden from view in the bedroom closet where Jamie was found and... Mm. And a locked safe. Mm-hmm. Suspicious. So Sandy said that Jamie had a gun yeah. and she knew he had a gun. She didn't really want, you know, anything to do with the gun, but he wanted to get it for protection and he, w- she wanted him to lock it in the safe, but she didn't know where exactly he kept the gun because she told him basically out of sight, out of mind it. for yeah. me. Yeah. yeah. So it seemed like maybe the bathroom closet might have been her closet and the bedroom closet might have been his because mm-hmm. I'm thinking like if you have a gun in that closet seem I don't know it seemed like it was more his territory I don't know yeah that's what it's sounding like if you have two closets obviously and if she's going to the bathroom closet to yeah. get dressed yeah. you would assume that was her closet I mean why would you share two closets when you can have one all to yourself really mm. <laughs> <laughs> what appeared to be a bloody finger finger or thumbprint 
was observed by crime scene unit investigators and homicide detectives during the investigation mm-hmm. on the hand on the handle of the safe that was located in the bat the bedroom closet according to the defense motion inexplicably no examination was conducted for latent prints or the presence of dna despite the fact that fingerprint ridges and grooves are easily observed on photographic evidence of the handle isn't that like the first thing you do so the police were just like it's hers like we don't have to investigate oh mm -mm. case case closed it's hers. Mm, that's bad shoddy police work what the fuck huh that's why there are holes in this case on both sides oh sandy was taken straight Wait, from hi- the- so the gun was just in the closet no one had touched it right it was still in its hiding right. spot or whatever okay and the safe like it, was-, it was it was kind of assumed at first that maybe he had gone for the gun right and then was overpowered because yeah. it was near him, I guess. But no one touched the gun. I mean, they didn't dust for prints or anything on the gun, but it wasn't stolen so. and nothing, you know. And the safe was not opened? It was not open, but it looked like but there was, was a, a fingerprint on it. There's a fingerprint okay. on the handle that was in blood. Were they like, was it, I mean, obviously they had like a nice house or whatever, but was it known like that they were wealthy or... Uh, it didn't really, s- I couldn't find anything that said that, okay. but, uh, I would assume, like, they have a nice house, you know, they're pretty, like, known in their community as just being, like, a nice couple that goes to church and stuff, and okay. I don't, I'm not sure exactly what people knew, but, you know, shoddy police work so far. Super awful. So Sandra was taken straight from the scene of the crime to the police station for interrogation instead of the hospital, despite detectives telling the family otherwise. Oh, uh, she had fucked. said that she had said that she like had a she was fine. She wasn't harmed other than she had a bump on her head, which she thinks that she was hit in the head and knocked out. Uh-huh. Um, some article said that they offered to take her to the hospital, but she declined and said that she would just go to the police station with them instead because she was fine. Okay. But other articles said that they just took her to the police station without getting her examined. Mm hmm. Detectives conducted a quick and careless investigation, failing to collect and thoroughly document important evidence, and requesting an arrest warrant from the DA within two hours of arriving at the crime scene. So what is their deal? Well, I will read to you what their deal is eventually when I get to it. (laughs) During her police interview, Sandy told detectives that she and Jim, Jamie... So they go by Sandy and Jim, but, you know, Sandra and Jamie were their God-given names. Right, I can handle it. Okay. Okay, all right. So she told the detectives basically what I told you, that they had gone to their their favorite Mexican restaurant. They stopped at CVS to buy drink mixers. She remembered a mysterious car trailing them after they left the CVS parking lot, but that it had turned a different direction at some point. They turned a different direction, so she was like, it must, you know probably wasn't them Hmm. i was probably being paranoid Mm -hmm. she but she also said that she had never heard or saw her husband being attacked Mm -hmm. she told the police that she blacked out after either hitting her head or being struck and may have had an epileptic seizure she said that she couldn't move said i she said i couldn't move because i had had a seizure and so i usually can't move anyway i hurt all over and my head hurts and she said that was like kind of normal after she would have a grand mal seizure that yeah. like you know your muscles tighten up and because of that like her body is 
was in pain the next day afterwards. Yeah, I think that's pretty standard. Plus, she's got the rheumatoid arthritis, so that probably, like, didn't help. Yeah. But the police were suspicious of her story. Detectives indicated they just couldn't understand how she could have been unaware of her husband being murdered in the next room. Well, if she had had a seizure... That's my whole thing. Like, if if she was legitimately knocked out and had a seizure, like... And her memory's already spotty. Why, like, why would... Because the, their thing was, like, how did she hear the dogs barking outside but couldn't hear a man screaming for his life, like, in the next room? Because that was before her seizure. Exactly. Uh, okay. Do so they not you know can, how seizures but, work? Well, I'm going to get ahead of myself, but their thing was she had been seizure-free for a few years. Still... Um, but I thought, you know, if you have a history of seizures, yes. some, something as stressful as being hit in the back of the head or, you know, being startled by intruders could trigger one. Yeah. I, I'm not an expert on seizures, but it seemed like they were like, well, she hasn't had one in years, so she's cured, obviously, obviously. She's, she's cured. What the fuck? Um, the investigators were troubled by Sandra's demeanor. She was slow to answer their questions and her answers tended to be evasive. Okay. She was covering... Here's the thing. If you've, like, just had a seizure, you... Yeah. It takes a while to come back. Yeah. You're gonna be slow answering questions, especially if you don't fucking know the answer, and you just found out that your husband has been murdered. You're gonna be trying to figure out, figure out like, what just happened, you know? Not to mention, I watched some of the interrogation videos oh. of her, and, like... She's, you know, sitting there, like you said, like if, if in fact she did have a seizure and was coming out of it, like it makes sense to me, her demeanor and the, the, there are two police officers in this room and they're just like going at her. Like she's sitting there and they're like, what happened, Sandra? What happened, Sandra? Tell us what happened. We know you know what happened. Tell us what happened. What happened, Sandra? What Uh happened? And she's like, she was like, I don't know. Like, this is all I can remember. And they're like, you're not telling us the whole truth. What happened? What happened? And they're just like, yeah, like I was getting like pissed off at the cop just like attacking her. And and I'm like, you know, even if she was or is guilty, you're not going to get a real confession. Yeah, that is not the way to get it. Like, this is such bad police work. Who trained them to do interrogations? This is fucking awful. Yeah, they were just going at her. Like, and she, you know, she would just answer a question kind of as best she could or you know if she is guilty you know she was a little evasive but if she truly didn't know they were like hounding her like in her face like repeating questions over and over again until like she answered something that in a way that they liked it you know i mean that's just annoying yeah and like eventually she was like i think i need a lawyer and good yeah they were like okay well you can get a lawyer but then they kept like you know harassing her like that like all right well you can talk to us because we know you did it like you you, we know like come on sandra you did it like just tell us how he tell us what you did to your husband tell us tell us how you put the door under i mean the chair under the door well they have they have interesting evidence for that okay another part they said that she was covering her face a lot when she was talking and that she was avoiding eye contact um, which you're not going to stare down a police officer who's interrogating you. Also not to be rude. I'm like really not trying to be rude, but Uh in a lot of the pictures, she might've had like a little bit of like a, some kind of eye issue. Cause it's some, some of the pictures, her eyes weren't focused in the same place. Oh, so they couldn't tell. 
So I'm not sure. Like, yeah, I'm not, not sure. Like what? I mean, I don't know. I just wanted to say, like, put that out there because I did notice that. And I don't, you know, I'm not trying to be mean, but that was, it was something here's, kind of noticeable. Here's the other thing, though. If I'm, like, being interrogated by police, I'm probably going to keep my head down. I'm not going to, like, look at them. Well, especially when they're literally just just hounding you with the same question yeah. over and over again and you're trying to collect listening and you're trying to and figure you're trying out to, what happened yeah yeah trying to collect your thoughts and like okay maybe do do i know anything more yeah. i don't know like this is you all to, i like, remember kinda, like look away from them to remember you know and they said that she wasn't displaying much emotion and that she sounded like she was crying but there were no tears okay well i don't like that but i don't know if i can trust them i don't like that and then the no, other thing like they said was usually when you have a a seizure after about two hours you you're back to normal uh ish you know at, yeah. relatively speaking and the timeline says basically that she was in the closet for about 14 hours oh shit so plausibly enough time to kind of get herself back to normal unless she was except, hit in the head yeah except for if she was hit in the head or except for if she doesn't know what happened and she just like <laughs> woke up in a bathroom tied up and then you're just like what the fuck happened wouldn't yeah. that put you kind of in a daze like wouldn't you be kind of confused you would think so and then to find out that your husband was brutally murdered and yeah. you didn't know anything about it yeah and investigators also asked sandra for her best understanding of how jamie died uh-huh. She said that Jamie didn't have any known enemies, but she briefly offered a theory, which was the people tailgating them, because she'd said that Jamie had a propensity for trying to annoy tailgaters, as I like to do, you know, slow down in front of them so that they can't <laughs> right, you know, make, they make them a little mad. And I guess, like, he he tended to do that, and that night he did do that and kind of was driving slowly in front of these people and pissing them off. Mm-hmm. Um, but then they drove a separate way. They turned before the the couple turned. Right. And so, you know, that was the only thing she could think of. The medical examiner didn't find any ligature marks or hemorrhages around Jamie's legs where he had been tied up with a phone cord which indicated that he was tied up after he died since there was no bruising around, you know, like if he was alive struggling, there would be bruises. Mm -hmm. And also his, his legs were, his feet were crossed or his ankles were crossed, which is not really a defensive position. Uh So they surmised that he was killed and then tied up and put in the closet to make it look like, an invasion or something right inside the master bathroom investigators like i said found a blouse and some towels a large kitchen knife all in the jacuzzi the knife had belonged to the same brand of cutlery found in the kitchen okay and jamie's blood was detected on the blade suggesting that that was the murder weapon right outside the master bedroom where jamie's body lay dead uh the master bathroom was the only room in the entire house where jamie's blood was discovered so they're theorizing that mm. because it was only in that area, either the killer had to have like washed thoroughly before they left that room because it was almost impossible with the amount of blood from stabbing that they wouldn't have left blood traces throughout the house if during their you know search for jewels or whatever they were looking for. Right. So that was suspicious to them. Okay. The prosecution proposed that no blood was found elsewhere because Cassandra had killed Jamie in the master bedroom and then washed herself in the bathroom. Well, question. 
Mm-hmm. They didn't check for fingerprints. Did they check for blood elsewhere? I or did my they understand- only check the bathroom? I'm guessing that they like didn't you know do a fine tooth comb looking for blood, but they would in their mind they would have seen like bloody shoe prints on the carpeting leading up to it, or you know just some kind of blood on the path. Not necessarily in the other bedrooms, but at least, like, going down the stairs or, like, out the door that they supposedly came in. They didn't find any blood. Okay. So, like, visible blood, but they didn't, like, luminol it to see if someone cleaned up or anything. I'm not sure about that, but I don't think so because of how quick they investigated. Right. The prosecution proposed next that Sandra opened the garage door after killing Jamie so that she could be rescued by the following day by the visitors because she knew that they were coming Mm -hmm. so then she would have witness to this horrible thing right the prosecution also said that sandra restrained herself in the bathroom closet so as to appear that she could not have been the killer oh another question yeah they're so rich and fancy why don't they have a bathroom phone (laughs) which i think is gross and unnecessary but clearly it's necessary (laughs) what would they use the phone for so she could have called for help but it would have been in the bathroom not in the closet where she was locked Oh, she was locked and in the, tied up. Not the bathroom. Oh, okay. No, she was in the bathroom closet. Oh, interesting. So someone could have gone in there and cleaned up. Theoretically, yeah. And she and could have were, been locked in the closet still. And there were the two towels that were in the bathtub that could have been used to wipe up. Well, and you're not anything. gonna if you break into someone's house, you're not gonna like want to walk out of the house all fucking bloody, right? That's kind of obvious. Yeah, but you would assume that they would have blood on their clothes. So what are they gonna do? Well, they could, like, wash their hands if it's dark out or something. Or maybe they're, like, wearing dark clothes or it's dark outside or... True. True. Or did they yeah, steal any of nighttime. his clothes? Like, maybe that some of his clothes were missing and they could have changed and then took their clothes to throw them away somewhere? I don't think they ever looked through his clothes to see if well, that was a thing. Okay, they're not good detectives. <laughs> so, interestingly, the prosecution in court demonstrated how she could have tied herself up. Okay. And they made a video from that from their house using their stuff and showed how someone could indeed lock themselves in the bathroom closet by using a pillow sham underneath the chair and then they'd have to put the sham under the closet door so that they could close the closet and then pull the sham and then the door would lean up against the closet and they were able there there is a video of the police doing this showing the chair leans up yep enough to because usually you like wedge it under right you like wedge it under the doorknob yeah, so you line the chair up just enough. Yeah. You can, like, squeeze into the closet, and then you, like, grab the leg of the chair and pull it towards you until your arm is just, you know, the, the door is just wide enough that you can slip your arm back in. Uh-huh. And then you just pull the chair the rest of the way with the pillow shant. And it falls? Because it's on the legs, like, the back legs of the chair. It'll pull it enough that uh-huh. it'll go underneath the okay. closet. So, like what I said, on the... What year was this? 2012. Were there Google searches of how to, like, lock a door Interesting from the question. Interesting oh. question. I think I get to it later, but basically police looked through their computers and phones, of and there was, there was nothing. There was no searching of mm. how to clean up a murder scene, no mm-hmm. searching of how to kill your husband, mm-hmm. you know. How to lock no- yourself in how a to closet, lock yourself. how to tie yourself up. There was nothing like that. No, no searches. There were there were no there was no indication that they had an unhappy marriage uh-huh. based on their searches. There was nothing to just nothing show suspicious. Nothing. At all. 
Absolutely nothing suspicious. Okay. Was anything stolen? The family says yes, things were stolen. The investigators say no, things were not stolen. Okay, well, wouldn't the family know? Like, yeah. Wouldn't they know what's missing more so than investigators? Yeah, so it's it's hard because it looked like things were rifled through, but it didn't, like, there, there was still stuff of value that hadn't been taken. Mm-hmm. That could have easily been taken, like cameras that are small enough to put in your pocket or a backpack, you know. But it looked like a TV was taken. But then, like, someone else had said, oh, that TV had been, like, moved before. Like, it had been, they had gotten rid of it before, so it wasn't taken. Okay. So it was hard to tell. Hmm. I see. The, the recreation that they did of the pulling of the door chair to the door... Yeah. Was in, was inspired because they had found a pillow sham in the master bathroom and the sham was torn like it had been dragged or something, you know, had some tear marks was on it. Was it found in the closet, though? Right. They said that it was found in the bathroom, which is like... So then how is she going to open the door sense. and throw it, it out? But then it could have been, you know, with, with the, I don't know, with the brother going in there trying to untie her, moving stuff out of the way to like... That she get slyly chucked a sham out? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Okay. Aside from the physical evidence of staging, the prosecution drew attention to other evidence that undermined Sandra's claim that Jamie had been killed at the hands of a home invader. Their evidence of staging is the torn pillow sham, which people could have torn up to try and tie someone up with it, right? Yeah. And well, but they but no one was used Sorry, no pillow sham was used to tie them up. Jamie was tied up with, like, a rope and telephone cord, and Sandra was tied up with a scarf and some stretchy material. Well, yeah, maybe they, like, tore the pillow sham, and they're like, this isn't going to work. Maybe. But that's their evidence of her staging it, right? Basically, the pillow sham, the fact that the kitchen knife was from their kitchen, and there was just blood in the bathroom. And, uh... I mean, the fact that sh- she doesn't have much of an alibi and they don't okay. see how someone could have gotten in and out and not left any evidence, even though they found DNA of two individuals that were not family members, but Ooh. they never, never investigated those. Like, why? Like, why not? Because they had it out for Sandy. Yeah, but if you're trying to make a solid case, don't you do the whole, like, okay, well, we'll rule assume. out people? Well... Okay. You would assume. Yeah, you would if they were. Sometimes you got dirty cops. Good at their jab. Um, like I said, aside from the other evidence, so there, there was other, other evidence. For instance, the prosecution called a next door neighbor who testified that she never heard the dogs barking that night, mm. even though even though those dogs had woken her up many times before. Mm-hmm. So she was used to them barking, and she said that she didn't have a problem with the dogs barking that night. Which is interesting. That is interesting. And then, like I had said before, if Sandy could hear the dogs, why didn't she hear Jamie fighting with a home invader? At least during the 15 minutes that she had remained in the jacuzzi tub and when she was lotioning herself, (laughs) wouldn't you assume that, like, if someone was in the house with him, she would have heard some kind of commotion before? Unless they, like, threaten him and they're like, we're going to kill your wife, too, if you make a sound kind of a thing. Right? Like, just do what we say and no one yeah. gets hurt. Or maybe he didn't... Yeah. Like, he was trying not to let them upstairs to let them know that she was there, maybe. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I don't... I don't know. So they say that, like, well, why didn't you hear any commotion if you yeah. heard the dogs? 
And instead of being like, I just didn't hear anything. I must have been knocked out or whatever. She said that, oh, it was because sometimes the jacuzzi tub was loud and defective. So sometimes it would get really loud and you can't hear anything. Uh-huh. Which... Okay, but I was going to say, like, if you're in the jacuzzi tub with the jacuzzi jets going and it's like, you know, just like a bunch of noise. But you were able to hear the dogs barking outside, but not your husband Yeah, because maybe there's, maybe the window, maybe the bathroom has a window that goes to the backyard. I don't know. And you can hear the dogs barking in the backyard because they're standing like right below the window. Or maybe during that time the jets were off. And then he was like, oh, I'm going to be gone. Might as well, like, put the jets on because we can't hear each other when we're talking if the jets are on. But since I'm going to be gone, we're not going to be talking. Go ahead and put the jets on. I don't know. So she claimed that the the jets might have been, like, loud and defective. But the prosecution said that that's not so since right after the murder, she sold the house. And she didn't include any documents saying that the tub was defective. Yeah, but who's going to do that to a new buyer? Who's going to be like, I oh, our, our tub is shot. Sucks. I don't know. I don't I don't know anything about real estate and how much you have to like. I doubt you have you to know. disclose a defective jacuzzi tub. I don't know. Yeah. So the prosecution argued to the jury that that Sandra's claim of a home invasion was implausible. Wait, did they ask was... the new homeowners if the tub was defective, though? Uh, No. Well, missed opportunity. Yep. They said that there was no forced entry, there was no property taken, and there was no blood outside the master bedroom and bathroom. Okay, but that would make sense if he went outside and opened the door to quiet the dogs, and then someone pushed their way in. Right. And the door was open for the brother to come through, so you wouldn't need to break in if a door is open. Right? Right. Or if... Yeah, or if they just, like, leave the garage door, like, some people just, like, leave their garage door open or, like, forget it's open or, you yeah. know, I don't or know. if you're, like, in a, if you're in a safe neighborhood that you just never lock, I mean, I know some people that live out in, you know, different areas of the United States that never lock their doors because nothing ever happens. Well, and what if the garage door is one of those that detects if something's in the way and then, like, reopens and maybe they, like, closed it at night and then yeah. it, like, caught something and they didn't pay attention and it just opened up again? Maybe. Yeah, and then they, like, probably don't lock their doors, because why would you when you're, like, you know, ah, I don't know. So then the defense, one of their points related was related to the absence of DNA evidence. The defense showed that Jamie did not have Sandra's DNA under his fingernails and mm-hmm. vice versa. Mm-hmm. That Jamie did not have Jamie's DNA under her fingernails. Because skin scrapings would have been expected in a close hand-to-hand ex- struggle, right. and yet there was no DNA evidence indicating any scrapings, Yeah. the defense argued that Sandra could have not been Jamie's killer. They emphasized that photographs taken after the murder, Sandra did not have any broken fingernails or injuries to her hands. Well, and a stab 13 times, you'd think that you'd get cut yourself. Not to mention you have rheumatoid arthritis. So you can't even grip things very how well. You're, yeah, you can't grip very well, and uh-huh. you're going to stab someone and 31 times. And your hips all times. fucked up. Both your hips are fucked up, but you're going to, like, beat someone to death? 
Now, I was wondering how she would have been able to overpower him. But oh, it did you say 31 was... times, not 13? Yeah. Oh, fuck. 31 yeah. times. The, you're going to get stabbed yourself. Your hand's going to, like, slip or whatever, you know? Like, that's what they always look for that when there's, like, an excessive stabbing. It's always, like, chances are the murderer's cut blood yourself. is yeah. on... Yeah. And okay. not to mention that uh, she had uh, uh, previously broken a shoulder... Oh my god! So, yeah, yeah. And, uh, like I said, I was wondering how if if she could if she was to overpower him, how would that happen? Right. And I read something that said that although he was taller than her, she outweighed him by fifteen pounds. So he was a very slight um, individual. Okay, but that's not that much. That's not that much. And fifteen if you're... pounds is not much, and men are just like more muscular. Right. And if she's really dealing with arthritis and yeah. hip replacements yeah. and a broken shoulder, I just don't see how she could stab someone and beat them on the head. No. You know? Well, and, okay, so the other thing is I want to say, they found the DNA of the two individuals. Mm-hmm. Clearly that DNA was, like, in the crime scene because they didn't do any investigation. Else. Right. So it's right. not like it was, like, downstairs where, yeah, clearly they'd have other people in their house and other people's mm-hmm. DNA. Like, obviously that DNA was from the crime scene somehow. Yep. The uh-huh. defense produced family, wit- family friends as witnesses who testified that Sandra would have auras and forget things. So when, for seizures, people tend to have right. auras, like, yeah. before they go into a, a seizure. Yeah. Um, and so they, they said that despite her not having grand mal seizures all the time, she was experiencing a lot of auras and forgetfulness. Well, and the other thing is, like, even... Like, what if she... What if she just made up the lotion story? Like, what if she just didn't... Because she, like, couldn't remember what happened. She just remembered, like, being in the bathtub, and then she remembered being in the closet. And then her mind was like, well, normally I would get out of the bathtub and I'd go into the closet, lotion up... (laughs) And get dressed. Like, maybe well, her main I guess her brain that, made that connection. Um, I, I, th- I think she really did go into the closet because although Jamie was found nude, she was found in a robe, which to me seemed like she got out of the tub and put the robe right, on. Right, right, right. Okay. So fam- the same family friends testified that Sandra and Jamie were a happy couple who yeah. didn't appear, they didn't appear to be suffering from any marital discord or financial problems. Well, and he's the one who takes care of her. Why would she kill the person who takes care of her? Right. Along those same lines, like I said, she, they did a di- digital forensic analysis mm-hmm. and they examined the couple's computers and cell phones and testified that there was no evidence of any extramarital relationships nor any suspicious internet searches like how to tie knots or clean up a murder. <laughs> right. The defense also emphasized the testimony from Jamie's brother, who said that when he found Sandra trapped in the bathroom closet, the chair had been wedged under the handle and was in direct contact with the tile floor with no pillow sham underneath. Right. The defense noted that the lead investigator assigned to Jamie's murder had a reputation among law enforcement for being untruthful and doing sloppy police work. Then why does he fucking have a job? Like, what? If that's what you're known for, why do you still have that job? (laughs) That's so fucking dumb. The defense criticized... They're like, yeah, he's terrible at his job. We all know it, but who's going to fire him? Yeah. It's not like it's an important job or anything where people's lives are at stake. (laughs) God damn it. Yep. The police criticized the investigator for not exploring other suspects. Yes. 
including a neighbor with a penchant for committing theft who was spotted lingering around the property after the first responders what? arrived. That's suspicious as fuck. At least investigate it. Look for, like, cuts or, you know. Mm-hmm. DNA the defense, swab. <laughs> the defense further criticized the prosecution's argument that no... Th- no theft had been committed. The defense pointed out that a backpack had been found in the garage containing a video game console and jewelry belonging to Sandra. Mm. The defense proposed that the home invader had dropped the backpack as he was fleeing the property, perhaps because he was startled. But then I'm like, what was, what would he have been startled from? If well, here's he bro- the thing. What if he had the backpack? He was like, you said it was in the garage. Yeah. What if he's, like, leaving the garage, he hears, like, a car or hears people talking outside. He's like, well, I better get out of here without my stuff. I'll come back for it later and leave the garage door open so I can get it later. Maybe. If he's a neighbor, he could always go back and get it. I don't know. I just don't think you would want to go back onto the property after you've just brutally murdered someone. Well, maybe you just can't walk away with a backpack and not be obvious. I don't know, because then... Later, they said that the backpack was actually the daughter's backpack, and so it was kind of suspicious that if someone went in to rob a place, you'd think that they'd bring their own bag. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Mac Seacrest, Sandy's defense attorney, said, This idea that something must have happened, and then she went crazy and subjected him to over 50 blunt force trauma and sharp force trauma injuries is just impossible. It's insane. Not only because they were a happily married couple, but physically it would have been impossible with Sandra's medical history. Right. Liz Megler Rose, who was their daughter, said that the thought of her mother the thought that her mother could have murdered her father had had crossed her mind. I tried to look at the evidence. I tried to be unbiased about it, which is difficult because they're my parents. Yeah. In the end, I still want justice for my dad. I want to know who did this and it was not my mother, she yeah. said. Yeah. Sandy Melger wasn't arrested at that time. A year and a half went by, and she moved on with her life. I thought but she then, was arrested right away. Or she was taken into custody well, right away? They got a search warrant right away, and then she was taken into custody and okay. and talked, you know, okay, yeah. investigated or whatever. Um, so in the summer of 2014, two years later, the daughter had learned that the mother was indicted of her father's murder... I found out there was a warrant for her arrest, Rose said. We called the lawyer, and we had her turn herself in. It took uh-huh. an additional three years, but the case went, finally went to trial in 2017. So, so meantime, waited, she's sitting in jail for listen, three years. Listen, they waited for two years, yep. and they weren't ready, yep. so they waited for... Th- How is that a speedy yep. trial? Meantime, she's in prison, in jail waiting for her trial. Yeah, how the fuck is that a speedy trial? That's insane. And she has all these health issues. Yeah. So she was obviously not faring well in jail. Ugh. In court, the prosecutor Colleen Barnett argued a pl- a possible motive. The possible motive was that Sandy wanted a divorce, but feeling fearing that she would be shunned by her fellow Jehovah's Witnesses, she thought murder would be better. <laughs> Then poison. I guess, like, what? I guess, yeah, that's the other thing. That, like, um, stabbing, not typically a woman's method of killing. Also, 31 times and beating? Like, that's not just a, oh, I went out of my divorce, so I'm going to murder this guy. Like, that's not, that yeah. doesn't make sense. Yeah. 
Unless there's a history of, like, violence in the relationship. And even then, that doesn't really make sense. That's, like, extremely violent and, like, way overkill. So So the prosecutor says that she believes that Sandy had lured Jamie into letting her tie up his legs with a telephone cord, perhaps as some sort of sex game, and then took him by surprise using a large kitchen knife and stabbed him to death. But there's no bruising. Exactly. There's no bruising. So he was tied up after the death. How did the police get the prosecutors to go along with this? It's their job. They have to. (laughs) No, but prosecutors decide, like, what cases they're going to take. I don't know. This is just such shoddy law enforcement work all around. Yeah, and she said that as for the appearance of the home invasion... It was staged. She pointed to crime scene photos of drawers that were neatly arranged, not dumped. Although it still looked like the drawers had been gone through, but they weren't dumped on the floor. Right. She had argued that there was no sign of forced entry, which, duh, the brother got in, so someone was able to get in. Right. Also the dogs thing. Unless, like the prosecutor said, that Sandra opened the door after she murdered so that someone could get in and see, you know, what happened. Yeah, except for the dog thing, though. Yeah. Oh, okay. She also claimed that nothing was taken from the home. Which is iffy. Sandra's defense attorneys disagree, saying that there were a number of items of value that were removed. Well, also, like, why would you put together... I don't know. Never mind. Like I said, the officers had recorded a demonstration of how she could have used a small rug or pillow sham to shut herself in the closet. Who's going to think of that, though? I don't know. I never would have thought of that. <laughs> no, never. Like I said before, she showed the jury how Sandy could have tied her hands up behind her back. She also researched Sandy's medical records, telling the jury that Sandy had not reported any seizures to her primary care physician for several years prior to her husband's murder. And it was only well after he died that she recalled having a seizure that year. But like if, but you know, like I said before, if stress can trigger seizures, yeah. Just because you haven't had one for years doesn't mean that you're not prone to having seizures. No, if you get seizures, then you get seizures. Like, that's yeah. it. If you haven't had one for years, like, that's amazing. Good for you. But it can still happen at any time. It can still happen. Yeah. So uh. the defense argued that for the question of where, why, you know, Jamie's blood, uh, Sandy's attorneys argued that her hands were clean and that there were no signs of anyone that had cleaned up in the house there well were the other also... thing is too like what if what if her seizure was triggered by like alcohol it could have been what if because they don't maybe they don't drink a lot but they're like oh it's our anniversary we're gonna like get wasted and also when you're like a hot tub with a bunch of alcohol you're yeah. gonna get lightheaded you're gonna get super drunk like yeah, yeah. that's true mm-hmm. i've yeah i've definitely seen someone have a seizure from drinking too much alcohol but yeah but it's not yeah, scary. but I mean like the hot water the hot yeah, that's hot a good tubs point. and alcohol are never a good idea. And especially if you have like a bunch of medical issues like lupus. Yeah. You shouldn't be drinking, but anyway. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. And like I said, there were no injuries to her hands, and I guess the only wounds that she had on her were some slight bruising on her upper arms. And she said that it was because Jamie had helped her out of the bathtub so she wouldn't slip. So he grabbed her arms to pull her out, you know, to help her out of the bathtub at one point during the night. And that's what the bruising was from. And she 
didn't have any other marks except a couple of her fingernails they said were cloudy looking and the prosecution said that that was evidence she used like harsh cleaning solution but Uh, then the defense said that that could have been just caused by her medical problems mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) so well and even if she like scrubbed the shit out of her hands his hands were still like her dna wasn't on his hands Right. Were his right. fingernails cloudy? Like, what? Right. So there was no... Yeah, there was no evidence of her on him. And what if um, someone was and... breaking in to try and get into the safe? They couldn't get into the safe. And then they just, like, pieced out. Because they're like, this shit isn't worth it. I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. It's a, it's a crazy... Yeah, I, I, I went back and forth. Every time I would read an article, I'm like, ah, she did it. And then I'd read another article and I'm like, impossible. She couldn't have done it. I just and feel I like just... it's not likely that she had done it unless she had been faking her medical history. Well, it's like I said on uh, one of the other cases that we read that there's just not enough evidence. There's like, not there's enough There's not evidence. enidence it, 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 Yeah, not enough and concrete evidence. the fact that it was so brutal... Right. I just can't. I just don't buy it. And the fact that he was stabbed 31 times and she didn't cut herself at all. Yep. And that he was beat up and she wasn't bruised or cut at all. Like, I don't. That just doesn't. Right. Like, he wouldn't. He. You would assume mm-hmm. he would have tried to defend himself in any way, especially or if. Or if you're, like, punching someone, you're going to, like, hurt your knuckles or, you Definitely. Know? There would be know. some kind of evidence. And, like, if he wasn't tied up until after he died. Yeah. Why, why would he just sat there and taken it? Yeah. At least if he, you know, if she was having an episode, he could have tried to restrain her if he didn't want to hurt her, you know? Right. But there's no history of her being violent ever. No. The male and female DNA that investigators found around the house, they found on dresser drawer pulls, Uh door handles, and bathroom door handles. And they, like I said, did not match anyone in the Melger family. The defense says it came from unknown strangers. Yeah, places where they shouldn't be. The jury deliberated over the case for about eight hours over two days. At first, Tom Bush, the jury foreman, said the jury was split down the middle. On the second day, however, it reached a verdict. Sandy Megler was found guilty of murder. At her sentencing, she was given 27 years in state prison. How? She is now appealing her conviction. That's what I don't understand. Like... Like I said, I could go either way. I'm not saying that 100% she didn't do it, and I'm not saying 100% she did do it, but there's just not enough evidence to convict without a reasonable doubt. I just feel like there's too much evidence to say that there's, like, a huge reasonable doubt. Yeah, they're, at like, least they huge. need to, like... huge. At least they need to tie up the loose ends and be like, oh, yeah, this DNA, it was actually from... Their, you know, they have a house cleaner come once a week or whatever, well, and it was her DNA, or something. And is there anything that, like... Was there, so there was, like, the knife in the bathtub, but was he beat with, like, an object, or was he beat with, like... They didn't because, find, they, they just found the knife. See, and that's suspicious, too, because she couldn't have kicked him because her hips were fucked. She couldn't have, like, punched him because either her knuckles would have been damaged or her broken shoulder, plus she can't form a fist, probably. Like, right. what the hell? Like, I just don't see that she would be able to beat the shit out of him and stab him 31 times. Like, I don't see that happening. Yep. Just the fact that she wasn't injured at all is, like, 
What That's what gets me because you're gonna, like you said, there's, you're, you're gonna have some kind of wounds in some way just from your your hands slipping, there being so much blood. You're gonna cut yourself. You're gonna bruise your knuckles well, for punching. That, the whole thing is just super diabolical for her just wanting out of a divorce for her to be like, let me figure out how to get this pillow sham situation happening. I can't Google it anywhere. I'm going to like figure this out on my own and mastermind this. And then like, I'm going to go around the house and like rifle through drawers and put a bloody fingerprint on like the safe. Unless he did that. I don't know. Or like, yeah, they didn't even check to see. That's the thing. They didn't even check to see if it was his fingerprint just to eliminate it. They were just like, Oh, bloody fingerprint on the safe. It was hers. Well, and why would, uh, why would a male and a female's DNA be on drawer handles? Yeah. Like, that doesn't make sense. And the the sham thing, like, what? How? Like, what? Especially in your own, like, bedroom when you would assume with a house like that, you, you'd you probably yeah. have guests over, but no one probably goes to their bedroom no, or their bathroom upstairs. No, who would be upstairs. opening their drawers? Exactly. Eh. So one of her family members contacted Bob Ruff, who's a former Ruff. fire... Yeah, he's a former fire chief, and now he's a host of a criminal investigation podcast called Truth and Justice... to help her out um he said you're innocent until proven guilty i saw that the prosecution's case didn't have any meat to it there are no bones behind why they convicted her ruff said meat and bones (laughs) he's like a dog (laughs) rough cartoon dog (laughs) i didn't see any bones in those holes nope (laughs) can i see a scenario where this happened can i make this make sense that Sandra Meg- Melger killed her husband. In this case, I couldn't see it. So we jumped in. So he decided he was going to like take over doing some investigating. Well, only the other part is like if their cop, the lead detective or whatever, is like a shitty police officer. It's yep. like, what the fuck? Okay. So. What'd he find? He says assailants could have entered the house when Jim Megler opened the back door to let the dogs in hey. from the backyard. Mm-hmm. Or... They may have already been inside the house when Jim went to get the dogs. Mm-hmm. San- Sandy has said she didn't know if the back door had been left unlocked as she had not used it all day. The offenders could have entered through the door, causing the dogs to bark, Ruff said. Jim emerged from the master suite to check on the dogs. Jim locks the door behind him and turns around to see the offenders confronting him with some kind of weapon. Mm-hmm. Liz Megler, the, do- the daughter is hoping that Ruff's novel approach of crowdsourcing on his podcast or his podcast investigations with his audience will help get her mother out of prison. Ruff said that one of the podcast listeners looked at the crime scene photo of the white blouse found in the tub and figured out from looking at the tag that designer made that specific shirt exclusively for Costco. Oh, which is huge because Costco happens to be one of the only places where you have to have a membership card for any item that you purchase. Right. So had they looked at that shirt and looked at their bank statements to see if it was Sandra's shirt, they could have eliminated it, but they didn't. Because they aren't Costco members. I don't think that they from from what I saw, she says it wasn't her shirt. She didn't recognize the shirt at all. But and that's what a murderer would say. if you are a Costco say. member, you are a proud Costco member. Uh-huh. You'd be like, I oh, got yeah. that shirt in 2006 for nine ninety nine. Yep. 
never seen a sale like that. You gotta and try it I out. I should have got three because yep. I went back to get another one. I loved it and so much. They discontinued it. It was gone. They didn't have it. <laughs> you always know you gotta get three. You know a Costco <laughs> member when you see one. You certainly do. And if you haven't gotten it, I myself am a Costco member. Yep. Yep. <laughs> we are a Costco family and we are proud of it. We are Costco people. Um, the police never looked into it, and they never looked into the two DNA samples that were found in the house. So that's what I'm saying. Like, the people could have broken in. They could have changed their clothes. Like, what if she took off the white shirt and, like, borrowed one of Sandy's shirts or one of um, Jamie's shirts or whatever so they didn't walk out all bloody? Mm-hmm. Uh. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Was the shirt bloody? It had spots of blood on it. Did they check it for DNA? Of course not. See, like, what if she was wearing that Costco shirt, then she took it off because it got blood on it, borrowed mm-hmm. one of Sandy's shirts. Yeah. Or even Sandy could, like, it, if they're saying that she's the murderer, she could have been wearing it and taken it off, you know, to try and clean it because it had blood splotches on it from the stabbing. Mm-hmm. So she could have tried to get rid of the evidence with the water, but they didn't test it and i don't know if it's but like i feel like if they were able to get the dna off the knife they would have been able to do it off the blouse yeah there would have been something but then also like okay so you're what so what you just throw everything in the tub thinking it just magically disappears like i don't understand that i don't know it's part of maybe maybe trying to clean off fingerprints or dna i don't know what like were they wet like what the, the tub was still full of water oh yeah oh i didn't realize that okay so the shirt and the knife, and what else was in there? Two towels. Two towels. That were still bloody. They almost looked like black towels. They were like really dark okay. towels, so I, you couldn't really tell. I just feel like most women know that cold water gets blood out. Why would you throw it in a hot tub? I mean, maybe the water wasn't cold or wasn't hot at that time. <laughs> I just, I don't know. I just feel like blood's not like, oh. I don't know. You can get blood out of clothes. I don't know. Okay. At one point, high-profile defense attorney Kathleen Zellner, who represented Stephen Avery from mm-hmm. Making a Murderer, decided that she would take on the case for the uh, appeal and stuff to represent nice. Me- Melger. Going to go through the numerous glaring errors in the police investigation. And Let's do it. Evidence that contradicted the police's version of Sandy committing the crime, such as... Because they're fucking wrong. Such as, first of all... Like I said, there was a suspect with a history of violence, drug charges, and robbery who was reported to the police by one of the local news crews that had shown up at the, at the scene. That and he they, was there and fucking that weird? He, he was behaving strangely uh-huh. at the crime scene that evening. That's like such a telltale sign. Yep. Going to check it out. Yes. Going yep. back. Yeah. And maybe he went back to go get the backpack, like you yes, said. And maybe he he's a was like, oh, shit, they're going to find that. Uh-huh. I don't know. Uh-huh. But the police chose to investigate the suspect by leaving a business card at his door. Mm, that's and, such good police work. And after they had failed two attempts to reach him, they that's where their investigation on him ended. Because we all know someone who's had run-ins with the police is going to call them voluntarily. Uh-huh. And talk to them. Also, a similar home invasion that was carried out in the surrounding area with nearly identical M.O. was never investigated for possible connections. Wow. Very little forensic testing was carried out on the crime scene. For example, 
blood photographed on the safe handle, like I'd said, which, mm-hmm. you know, had a fingerprint, not tested. Um, the male and female DNA not belonging to the Melgers was found in several key areas. Yet this evidence was ignored as it did not fit the police's narrative. I just feel like there's another robbery that matched the M.O. Like, uh... Like, come on, at least check it out. But they didn't even check yes. it out. Yeah. San- uh, again, Sandy had no cuts or wounds or bruising. That one's huge to me. Yeah, me too. Um, especially in contrast with his severely yes. battered and violently, yes. you know... Uh, I guess also, both of his eye sockets were fractured. And he had two other fractures on his skull. So, like, that's... Yeah, that's intense. A lot of force for someone yes. that's got arthritis and yeah, can barely and hip grip replacements. something. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. She couldn't even, like, kicked him. Yeah. You know? Uh, You'll be happy to know that the lead detective, Sean Rubin Carizal, who was the stupid guy that didn't even look for anything didn't care at all he was forced to resign two years after the crime due to forging search warrants in another murder investigation what the fuck when detective carizzle's office was cleared out evidence from the melger case was found untested and incorrectly stored in a filing cabinet in his office what Right? Okay, like, I what? Don't, Why? Like, I don't understand that. You get into police work, you become a detective. Like, isn't it because you're interested in solving crimes? Like, why are you. I just don't I understand don't that. Know. I feel like if I was a police detective, I'd want to know, like, without a doubt, as best I could, you know, like, like unless, you test all the evidence. Unless, the, uh, of course, of course. Unless there's something in it for him that I, I couldn't figure out what would have been in it for him. Or well, you just wanna, it's just or like you just another wanna, closed case. R- exactly. You just want to wrap it up real quick. And it's but like, well. it obviously wasn't wrapped up real quick. It took like five years. Yep. Ah. You know, just a few glaring errors, which may, may have put a potentially innocent woman away in prison, um, which, I mean, you know, what? no matter what side you're on, you have to admit that the case is very faulty and there's not a lot of evidence. I mean, I'm going to go out there and say, I don't think she did it. Yeah. I don't think she could have. Well, and then I was thinking like, okay, so maybe she hired someone to do it. But if okay, there's no phone. I was fo- just going to say that. But if yeah. there's no phone records yes. or like, unless she know like at church knows a murderer who she could just talk Another to at church. Another Jehovah Witness. Yeah. I, I don't know. Because I was trying to like figure out like, okay, you know, maybe she's not strong enough to actually do it herself. And she hired someone or convinced someone to but do it. But even then, like you stage it to look like a robbery. You don't kill that person. You don't like, that's not, that's, ooh, that's so much overkill. Like you don't kill them it's that much. a lot much. of overkill. I don't yeah. know how to say it. Like you like shoot him or something, right? Like you bring your own weapon and you make it look like a robbery, but. But I think then that's that's the the prosecution is like, well, that's even more evidence that she did it, because why would there just be such, you know, like you said, if it's a robbery, someone's just going to be in and out. They meet someone in there. They're going to just kill him with a gun or stab him like well, a couple if times they're trying to get the safe combination, though, and they think there's something in there. They're probably going to beat him up a bit to get the combination. Mm, I don't know. It's, it's very Ugh, I, I wish it's that they just had... overkill for anyone. So I feel like maybe, like, if it was a robbery, which I kind of feel like maybe it was, then that person could be, like, hopped up on who knows what and, like, fucking out of their minds and trying to get, like, 
You yeah. know, like you're gonna beat them up to get answers and be like, "Where's where are mm-hmm. your like gold and gems and whatever the where fuck? are your where, golden gems? Where's your safe? Where's your like secret storehouse of gold bars? I don't know. You're gonna like beat them up, right, to get answers. And then if you're like all methed out or whatever, then you're gonna like you know overkill. Yeah, and the fact that detectives ignored any evidence that pointed away from Sandy created yeah. a difficult path for her to be able to prove her innocence as the evidence that could and would have implicated someone else in this crime was not even collected correctly cataloged and some was not even submitted for testing or analysis i mean that's just insane so sandra was not innocent until proven guilty there was zero forensic evidence linking her to the case and no real motive yeah Pro- the prosecutor colleen barnett said that the motive to kill her husband and stage a break-in was for a $500,000 life insurance policy. However, this policy had been bought in years in advance, so it wasn't like he just got it and it's like, oh, money. Well, Plus, I assume they had doing, money. Yeah, yeah. clearly they're doing all right, and, like, he's taking care of her. Yeah. Yeah. I just don't see in what world she's going to be like, well, I'm going to be fine on my own, and I'm, like, right. happily married. I don't know. I don't know. I- And then she also used the religious beliefs aspect that Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, I guess, they don't look too kindly on uh, divorce. But murder is fine? Well, if she was a victim. Yes, but if she's like a real Jehovah's Witness, I just don't feel like she would jump to murder that brutal. Well, it said that the church, um, test a, a church friend testified that Jehovah's Witnesses believe that dead people are sleeping until the apocalypse and that uh, Barnett said that Melger may have taken her husband's death lightly because then she could just meet him once she dies and he's just sleeping. Then poison him. Don't Uh, disfigure uh, his body. You're gonna meet like an all like falling apart dude. Yeah. I don't know. I just feel like there are way easier ways to. I don't get it. Yeah kill the dude there were some outright lies by the harris county sheriff's office and its prosecutor allowed for potential for the potentially innocent woman to be charged and convicted in the heinous murder of murder i just don't understand like the prosecutor either being like yeah i'll take this case this is like super clear cut open closed like it makes absolutely no sense but yeah i'll fight for it i'll fight to put this woman this like ailing woman in prison for the rest of her life fine i'll do it yeah I don't like what's their deal. I don't know. Like, that's why this case interested me, because I usually don't like an unresolved, unsolved issue. Or I really like I said before, I really hate when people are falsely imprisoned. Yes. And going through this case, it was just like I had said, like I I read one article and I was like, oh, she did it for sure. Because there's like a what's that like one TV show, like Deadly Women or whatever, where they they make it seem like, you know, she was just just playing like she had all these ailments and she was really like this diabolical person who like convinced him to do the sex game with her and then just started (laughs) stabbing him. And I was like, wow, what a bitch. And then I was like reading other stuff and I'm like, wait a second, this doesn't add up. Like this is, I mean, even if she did do it, there's not enough evidence. That show is not accurate. (laughs) Maybe. I don't wow. know, because, I mean... what's their deal, too, for, like, staging the whole thing? Like, you know, making a TV show out of something that's clearly not that clear-cut? Views? 
I mean, well, if, everyone's you make it sound, it, if you make it sound like this woman killed her husband during a sex game, everyone's like, what? I want to know what happened. <laughs> What's that game? <laughs> yeah. How do we play? <laughs> how do I avoid it? What? <laughs> oh, whoops. <laughs> oh. Uh, yeah. No, so I feel like she didn't see. Okay. So when I was doing like the Scott Peterson thing and I was like, mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe I don't know. And then by the end I was like, he fucking did it. Mm-hmm. And then this one, I'm like, I don't think she did it. I don't think she did either. I don't think that there's I, enough yeah. evidence either way. Like the prosecution's just reaching. I think it's, yeah, I just, yeah, I don't think she did it. And they're saying that her epilepsy is not more. a not a good excuse, and like you know, I'm like, okay, like if she actually had a grand mal seizure, uh, your seizures are no excuse for yeah, your like, like what? not remembering. It's like, oh, uh, okay, yeah. Um, I want to know more about the break in, the other break in. Yeah, I didn't really like. I wonder if they caught the people. I wonder if it was a man and a woman. I wonder. I don't know. I yeah, I want to should... know more about that do more evidence i mean do more research i think you should do more evidence evidence. i should do more evidence wow it's really hot in here my brain is melting oh no i might have to to take a break to turn the fan on so i can like cool down for a minute but uh let's wrap this up yeah okay the tossed salad and the scrambled egg the tossed salad a scrambled egg the tossed salad tossed salad and the scrambled egg. A scrambled egg. So a tossed salad is someone who clearly knows right from wrong and chooses to do wrong anyway. Right, so the tossed salad has more components. The person is able to compartmentalize. And a scrambled egg is someone who can't tell right from wrong and they're just completely scrambled. Just one component, one track mind. They're all kinds of mixed up. There's no focus. They're disorganized. I don't know that there is... I mean, I feel like, once again, the justice system is a tossed salad, and I don't know what their motive was other than to wrap up a case. Yeah. Um, well, I feel like... I feel like whoever killed him, like, that is so extreme. It's yeah. so violent. It's so brutal. It's so awful. Something's clearly going on with them, and I don't think it's her. Like, she does not seem like... And they're not going to look for another, you know, whoever did it while she's still in jail ap- appealing for to be released. Well, yeah, I wonder how those appeals are going to go. Because so, that was 2012, and she was arrested... She was sentenced 2014. in 2017. Ooh, yeah, I wonder how it's all going to end up. So I'm hoping that... Um, there will be more information on this case to come and that maybe I can do a part two with what actually happened. Yeah. And maybe someone else will do more evidence. Yeah. Do more (laughs) evidence. Find out. You know, if you think, if you think it, lick it, do more evidence. That always do more evidence. That's fucking insane. (laughs) Yeah. Fuck. I can't say who's the tossed salad or scrambled egg in the actual murdering part, but the justice system for sure is a tossed salad. Once again, proving that they just don't care about actual facts. They just want to make a tidy case and wrap it up. It's like these people, it's like lives. Lives don't matter. Nope. Not only the people who were murdered, the people who are falsely accused, and also the people who are out and can do it again. 
Well, and also in the in the justice system, it's all about winning a case. It doesn't matter if you are the prosecutor and you get this case where you're like, are you serious? There's no evidence. The whole thing is like, it's a game. I got to win. So I'm going to put in whatever I can to make my my team win. And it's disgusting. Well, lawyers are actors. Yeah. There's always a show. There's always a show. Wow. Okay. So that's my story. Yeah, well, that uh, police officer, whatever the fuck, was tossed salad because that dude was a dick. And that prosecutor was a tossed salad. Like, what a dick. Yeah. Dicks all around. I guess that that uh, detective, he had gotten hired uh, after he was let go, or after he resigned, he got hired somewhere else. Yeah. And then they looked into why he resigned and they fired him so I'm just like, like That's a cool. catholic priest just move him around just move him around let him do the molesting in somewhere someone else's backyard not ours yeah let them do the bad evidence collecting in someone else's mm-hmm. neighborhood wow yikes yikes your turn okay so this one it's gonna be quite the episode i uh oh so this is cool because you went national and this time i went international so it works out you took a step outside (laughs) yeah let me tell you this took me fucking days (laughs) to look into holy shit and i started out with wikipedia but then after i you know how they have the sources at the end and then you like click on those links to like uh-huh. you know get more information turns out most of their information was based on this multi-part series that this amazing journalist did his name is evan ratliff and he did this like i think it was like seven part series on the activist magazine wow anyway it's super amazing go and read it i tried to get a lot of it i didn't get all of it because it's fucking unbelievable i hope that i conveyed it well enough if not please go read the article because it's like he did the work and it's it's really good so here we go (laughs) february 13th 2012 oh my god 6 30 and we both did 2012. I know. <laughs> I know. This right. is on another part of the world, though. It's th- 6.30 in the morning in Taytay, Philippines. Ooh, I love the name. Okay, in the Philippines. Taytay is a city of under 300,000 people. Jeremy Jimena. Do you say the J? Why are you going to put me on the spot like that? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> Jeremy Jimena is doing his rounds as a garbage collector. His first stop was at a vacant lot that wasn't officially on his route, but he added it because people would dump their garbage there. And like, what a wow. good, like, yeah, he's going out of his way to yeah. be, you know, good at his job. Although, Unlike you know, that police officer from your story. Well, I was going to say, unless, unless you were like doing that in America and then you'd get fired for like not following to the script. <laughs> I know, but I don't think that's how the Philippines work. So, he went to this vacant lot. There's a small pile of garbage, which is pretty, like, standard. Mm -hmm. And part of the pile was a rolled-up bedspread. Oh, no. It's a body. Don't touch it. Don't touch it. (laughs) So, he, like, bends down. He, like, picks up part of the blanket. And then he saw a foot. Nope. I told you he not knew, to touch it. I told him. <laughs> he knew that it was a woman's foot, like, immediately. So he ran with the driver to headquarters. Well, he, like, ran to the driver of the truck, and he's like, hey, I think we have a body. And then they ran together to headquarters and told the head of security there that they found 
a dead body, and he called the police. Okay. So the woman, she was Catherine Lee. She was a 43-year-old real estate agent from Las Pinas City. Hmm. It's about an hour south of Tay-Tay. She had been killed by gunshot wounds under each eye. Whoa, that's very specific. Yeah, fucking weird, right? She still had on jewelry. She had, like, a watch and I think, like, a necklace and maybe a bracelet. She had, like, a bunch of jewelry on, so obviously it wasn't robbery. And she was not sexually assaulted. Seems like a hit. Mm. So Catherine's husband asked the Philippine National Bureau of Investigation (laughs) to take over the case because... The police in the Philippines is apparently extremely corrupt. Mm, sounds familiar. The, <laughs> yeah, the Philippine National Bureau of Investigation is just like a touch less corrupt than the police. <laughs> so when uh, when a person in the Philippines asks them to take on a case, they have to do it. Wow. So this is what they found. Yeah, it's crazy because I guess the police are so distrusted that they had to have a different force that would actually look into things when asked. Hmm. So they found in early February of 2012, Catherine Lee received an email from a Canadian man living in Manila named Bill Maxwell. Uh-oh. Maxwell said that he and his colleague Tony were looking to invest in real estate. Okay. They had searched online for a broker and found Lee and she was super well known. She had won several trophies and awards. She was like a top real estate agent. Bill and Tony didn't specify what type of property they were looking for, only that they wanted a place farther south than Las Pinas, and it could be commercial or residential, a vacation property, or a ready-to-build lot. Preferably in Tay-Tay? Not necessarily. Just south of, like, the city. Mm, Okay. And as long as it was a solid investment. They were looking for an investment opportunity. Right. So for two days, she drove them around from property to property, but they weren't ready. And they're like, I don't know about this one. This one's cool, but I don't know. And then on the third outing, on the morning of February 12th, Lee met Bill and Tony on the outdoor patio of a Starbucks. Listen, Starbucks comes up like a lot in this story. (laughs) Everyone meets at Starbucks. I don't know why. But anyway, Uh, (laughs) they meet at a Starbucks. (laughs) They really are. In Las Piñas, not far from her home. There, they were joined by three other real estate brokers that she'd enlisted enlisted to help with the search. So the Canadians arrived in a silver Toyota Innova van. Bill was around six foot one with a beard and a prominent belly. (laughs) Cute. (laughs) (laughs) Tony was clean shaven and wore a baseball cap. The group drove to a gated community called Ponderosa, Mm -hmm. a former flower farm located 40 miles south of Manila, Hmm. where they examined a lot available for residential development. For lunch, they stopped at a nearby spot where the local, with the locals called Mushroom Burger. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) That's a menu item, not a name. (laughs) Where they were joined by two property owners Lee knew at around 3.30 p.m. The group then traveled to another farm about eight miles away in Cavite. They arrived at 4.30 and wandered around for an hour. When it was time to leave, the brokers and the property owners departed in one car. Lee joined Bill and Tony in the van. 
Sometime in the next 10 hours, Lee was shot four times in the head at close range, rolled up in a blanket, and deposited in a pile of garbage. Hmm. So through investigation, they learned that the names were obviously fake and that the van was a rental. Uh So there was no evidence at all. They also found it odd that she was shot with a 22 caliber magnum because apparently apparently when people were murdered and it happens like often in the Philippines and I guess it happens a lot in Taytay like they they did this whole thing where they were like yeah we find bodies all the time we're like not supposed to say it but it happens like oh. a lot <laughs> I was like oh okay uh, so yikes usually they use like a higher caliber gun but this one was a 22 and so it seemed like a signature cuz it was yeah. so rare And, like, a professional murder, like you said. Yeah. So, more investigation showed that another woman had been killed in a similar manner. That woman was a customs agent, also a real estate agent, so it's kind of iffy if she was a customs agent, but anyway. Or maybe she was a customs agent that had a real estate license or something. Right. So, she also was a real estate agent. Both cases went cold because there wasn't any evidence. So, until April of 2015, the U.S. Embassy called. The DEA had some information on the Catherine Lee case. Hmm. The DEA related their suspicion that the murders were two Americans, 41-year-old Adam Samia and 47-year-old Carl David Sitwell, which Sitwell is a character on Arrested Development. So, that's just... Okay. I didn't know it was a real last name, but it is. (laughs) So they lived in a small town of Roxboro, North Carolina. And they found out that they were these these two men who they were because the DEA was doing surveillance on a man named Joseph Hunter. Mm -hmm. So the plan was for the pair, whom Hunter referred to as Sal and JT, to fly to Manila take taxis to the predetermined location and get settled in Taytay or in Las Piñas, I don't know, somewhere in the Philippines they were supposed to get settled. Mm -hmm. And then they were going to follow their target, Catherine Lee. Hmm. They were supposed to track her and follow her, and they were, like, staking out her home from a hardware store across the street. And at some point, not long after, they finally made contact with her and started looking at properties. Why did they, they did were, they say why they targeted her yet? Oh, we'll get into okay. it. This is going to be, we're going to like go back in time. We're oh, going to wow. go different places. This is going to be like quite the story. So get out your board and your red strings okay, and your uh, pins and everything. Gotta map so, it all out. All right. So they were supposed to get her into a car, drive a quarter of a mile down the road, shoot her with a silenced handgun, and wrap her in a blanket. Mm-hmm. But instead, in Hunter's words, they went to all these different houses with her where there were people living in the houses. So every house they went to, people saw them together. Oh, my God. They saw their faces. They saw the real estate agent. So they went. They did this for, like, three different days. So, like, 100 people saw them. So do you think they were just, like, for lack of a better term, chickening out or um, I think they were just not good at their job. <laughs> right. Yeah, it sounds like they were like, oh, OK, we yeah. we could do maybe like because, a first time kill where they're like, I don't know, like, you know, talk. Well, I think they're like trying to find up. the right place to oh. like kill her and they just like couldn't 
for whatever reason, I don't know, they went to like all these homes where Damn. people were still living and like a lot of people saw them. And there's like one six foot one in the Philippines and he's like yeah. a white guy, you know, kinda like it's kind of obvious. <laughs> so Samia and Sitwell were arrested in Roxborough. Local media reports described the pair as well-liked local guys who ran a small gun paraphernalia company together. They traveled to gun shows to market accessories of their own invention, including a bra that doubled as a holster <gasps> called a bosom buddy. Uh, I mean, they could have worked on the name. They really could have worked on the name, but yeah, a bra holster. Yeah. Also, like, Seems... what are you reaching into yeah, your armholes? Yeah. Are you pulling your shirt up? Like, I don't understand for, how that's happening. You got to, like, but... wear, like, a really low-cut top so you can just, like, reach Very in. Very low-cut. But then at that yeah. point, wouldn't you just see the gun? Like, what? there's yeah. no need to hide it in a holster in your bra. I don't know. Also, that seems dangerous. Not to mention, anyway. unless it's, like, a really small gun or you've got gargantuan boobs. No, like, yeah. What kind of guns yeah. are we talking about? <laughs> like the tiniest guns. I don't know. So the day after their arrest, the pair were transferred to New York to be prosecuted. Both have pled not guilty to murder for hire, among other charges. Mm-hmm. So the mastermind, capital M, of this <laughs> murder had paid $70,000 to have Catherine killed because he had enlisted, enlisted her to purchase vacation property in Batangas, mm-hmm. which is a coastal region south of Manila, mm-hmm. he had given her money, at least 50 million pesos or almost $3 million. Whoa. But the deal never materialized because the person who Catherine Lee instructed to do the verification of the land to arrange the deeds and everything went off with the money. Ooh. That person is also suspected to have been killed, but the body has never been found. Okay, I was going to say, well, what about that guy? Yeah. 18 months after her murder, the DEA had arrested Hunter. He was a 48-year-old former Army Ranger from Kentucky. After he was discharged from the Army, he went back to his hometown with his wife, two sons, two dogs. There he got a job. He, like, applied to be a police officer, but then he decided he didn't want to be a police officer, and then he got a job as an inmate counselor. Oh, because he got a job as a police officer in New York City, but the city was too expensive. So Mm. instead he got a job as an inmate counselor at the Green River Correctional Complex. And then he got bored, and he, like, kind of missed traveling and all that. So he began working in private securities overseas at the peak of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. Then, in 2007, he was introduced to the mastermind and started working for him. Please tell me this person called themselves the mastermind. It's what he knew him as. Like some kind of villain in a movie? Oh, just wait. Oh, God, okay. Just wait. Okay. So, in 2010, he was fired because apparently he was too hot-headed. Also, his nickname was Rambo. So, (laughs) Okay. He was too hot-headed, so he was fired, but then he was rehired in 2011. Hunter described hiring a pair of hitmen to kill a customs broker who had failed to make good after accepting a bribe. So, you remember the first person who was murdered, Mm -hmm. the customs agent. Right. So, he said... I guess that they had some kind of business with the boss. Hunter says in one transcript, they get stuff through customs, right? They pay her and she didn't do it. After putting her under surveillance at home, unnamed assassins hired by Hunter discovered that the broker also worked as a real estate agent. 
They asked her to show them some rental properties, selected the best one at which to leave a body, and then asked to see it a second time. They shot her at the door. Wow. So now I'm going to take you to 2009. This is like a whole... Leave that there. Okay. We're going to go here. (laughs) Okay. So... Moran Oz is a 26-year-old manager of an Israeli customer relations call center. He goes with some business partners of his boss um, on a yacht. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, he was in the water, and two of the men on the boat were armed. (gasps) One of them fired into the ocean and said, that was for the sharks. The next one will be for you. (gasps) What? The man was holding a phone. He said, you're stealing from Paul. You need to tell us where you put the money. Oh, shit. So in February of 2005, Oz had just graduated from high school and completed his compulsory service in the Israeli army. Uh He was visiting an uncle in New York, kind of deciding what to do next with his life. Uh, When a friend of his called and said that his brother-in-law had just launched a company in Israel and was looking to hire The only requirements were a good command of the English language and a basic understanding of computers. Mm -hmm. So Oz flew home and took the job. It was a call center run by two brothers for a large organization that was a network of websites that went by names like RX Limited and Alphanet, and they sold prescription drugs to American consumers over the internet. Okay. On those sites, customers filled out a questionnaire asking about their medical history and symptoms. Ordered their medication of choice, then paid by credit card. The questionnaire was transferred to an American doctor, previously recruited by the company, who would write a prescription based on the answers. The prescription would then be transferred to a pharmacist, also recruited by RX Limited, and located in the U.S., mm-hmm. who would use a FedEx account supplied by the company to ship the drugs to the customers. Both the doctor and the pharmacist received a fee for each order. So for people in Israel who have universal health care, they thought this seemed like a really good, really good way for Americans to get their prescriptions because of our fucked up medical system. Right. Okay. So they thought, I mean, it all seemed like pretty legit, right? A database held the order history for every customer and tracked the dates and amounts of their last purchases. If a new order showed up more quickly than a drug should have been consumed, the customer couldn't get a refill until the appropriate amount of time had elapsed. Hmm. So pretty sounds, legit, right? Like sounds they're not, like they're thinking about things. Yeah, it sounds like a really a really great option. You know, you don't have to go see your doctor to get a prescription. Doctors are like looking at your symptoms, prescribing what they what you need. It's like you not know. to mention the astronomical copay you have to pay just to see the doctor right. for them to tell you that you're fine, just take an aspirin or something. <laughs> right. Or to be like, Well, I still need this medication yep. and then it's like, Okay, well you don't have to come see me, we'll just like refill. Mm-hmm. And you can't get like you can't eat them all or like sell them all or whatever and get more like, you know. Right. So pretty legit. So The Israeli staff was responsible for communicating with doctors and pharmacists and for customer support, dealing with password problems, lost shipments, expired credit cards, and incomplete questionnaires rejected by doctors. Mm -hmm. So when Oz began in 2005, the company had eight American pharmacies operating in the system, taking 8,000 orders a week. Whoa. After a few months, the number of employees doubled. And employees were instructed to adopt American-sounding names <laughs> and to say that they were located in Utah. <laughs> yep, okay. In, in 2006, one of the brothers that had owned the business was no longer, like, working for the business. 
And one afternoon in the fall of 2007, an instant message popped up on Oz's computer screen saying, I'm your boss now. What? And it was from someone calling himself Paul LaRue. Okay, Paul LaRue. You can't just announce yourself and be like, I'm in charge. Now. I'm the boss, bitch. Now dance. (laughs) So the message told him that the other brother was now also out of the business. And from now on, he said, you report to me. (laughs) Okay. Gonna need a confirmation from my previous boss. Well, he was told that LaRue was a South African programmer. Oh, good. Living... Living in the Philippines. At first, it was business as usual. The only difference was that the new boss was a bit more concerned about security. So they all had to, like, go through... I think they all had to, like, open email addresses on, like, this site. And they all had to, like, download this encryption software Uh, just to make sure everything was, like, super secure. Right. So a few months later, LaRue declared that he wanted to meet Oz and Alan Berkman, another employee, in person in Manila. So he flew them out business class to Manila through Hong Kong. A driver got them at the airport and then set, and then dropped them off at a luxury condo in Manila. Okay. And they met LaRue for a series of dinner meetings at the Hard Rock Cafe. Which <laughs> Classy. <okay. laughs> we got Starbucks, we got Hard Rock. We're like hitting all the marks. Yep. <laughs> so in the fall of 2008... LaRue brought Oz and Berkman back to Manila to tell them that he'd be opening a new call center in Tel Aviv, which he wanted them to staff and oversee. He said, money is not an issue. Shortly after that, LaRue sent an advance man, a British citizen named Robert McGowan, to Israel to register the new company called Customer Service Worldwide, or CSWW, under McGowan's own name. So... As RX Limited grew, LaRue opened call centers beyond Israel. The company's volume of orders created an endless stream of customer service requests, and RX Limited adopted aggressive email marketing techniques to recruit more. In the Philippines, LaRue's call centers were given names like Dial Magic and Global iNet Bridge. Okay. Eventually, he added one in India, too. So to fill the managerial positions, he turned to Oz and Berkman. Oz's childhood friend said his boss was always asking him to recruit people, Israelis, to go to the Philippines. Hmm. LaRue provided apartments to the Israeli transplants. He would also make them move around a lot for some reason. Okay. So he'd like have them settled in and then he'd be like, oh, actually, I need you to move to like this other apartment complex over here. Ooh. And they'd be like, okay. What? And then LaRue also owned a pub called Sid's. In Manila, which was a dumpy expat hangout, but he was rarely ever there. He just owned it. Well, I mean, it sounds like he, you know, owns a lot. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he also paid Israeli level salaries in Manila, which was a much cheaper place to live. Hmm. So it was like a good place to work, right? Like you're getting a shit ton of money to work in this like super cheap place to live. Um, And one of his managers was once invited to his home. He said the department was a massive, empty space with LaRue sitting alone at a desk, which was the only piece of furniture in the whole place. What? And he was surrounded by stacks of servers. What? Mm-hmm. Okay. So 
after the boat incident mm-hmm. where Oz was thrown off the boat and shot at, mm-hmm. uh, LaRue became increasingly vicious and threatening to employees when something wasn't done the way he had asked. Oh, no. He said, Alan better answer the phone or he won't have a hand to do it with or a tongue to speak. Oh, shit. And Oz and many others stayed with the company because they believed LaRue would kill them if they left. Right? I mean, you're shot at. So it was becoming apparent that LaRue's primary interest was pushing his business as far into the darkness as possible. In 2007, an Israeli-American named Levi Kugel was invited to come to the Philippines and work for LaRue directly. He and Oz began casually discussing the idea of going into a business themselves. Hmm. Kugel was an American citizen, and the two of them talked about the benefits of starting their own wholesale pharmacy in the U.S. Because they saw how good LaRue's business was doing. Right. They thought, like, we could do it, too. Right. So in early 2009, Oz got a call from LaRue saying that he had taken on new Brazilian partners and wanted Oz and Berkman to come to the Philippines to meet them. When they arrived, LaRue told Oz, Alan needs to take care of something. You'll come with me. Uh Uh-oh. LaRue pulled into the marina where he put Oz up for the night in a hotel, paying the bill in advance, and the Brazilians would meet him the next morning on the dock next to the yacht they would be taking to Cebu, which is an island that was a potential new site for a call center. And LaRue had, like, a bunch of boats, so he just, like, put them on one of them. Hmm. So when Oz arrived at the appointed dock the next morning, three men were waiting to meet him. After about a half hour, with the shoreline now just out of sight, one of the men asked Oz to get up from where he was sitting for a minute because he needed to get something. And the next thing he knew, he was in the ocean. And that's when the men started shooting at the water around him and accused him of stealing. Mm. Then it occurred to him that somehow the business he and Kugel had discussed had gotten back to LaRue. Uh-huh. In the water, he frantically explained that he and Kugel were just talking and that they'd hatched this idea of a pharmacy on the side that could be good for everyone. I would have told Paul if I had done it, Oz said. I would never do something behind his back. Eventually, they pulled him back on board and motored to a small, isolated island where they anchored for the night, which is terrifying. Yeah. He's, like, stuck on this boat with these people who, like, could have killed him. And still can kill him. Shit. So the next day, LaRue picked him up for the drive back to Manila, and LaRue des- denied knowing anything about the incident. He said he had nothing to do with it, and it was all the Brazilians and that they were men that LaRue had to listen to. Hmm. So before he dropped Oz back in Manila, LaRue left him a warning. If you are thinking to go to Israel to close the office, I would suggest that you don't want to deal with these guys. They will find you. Do whatever they say. By all means, don't go back and panic. So it seems like maybe he had something to do with it, right? Uh Uh So now we're going to go to a different place. Okay. So on the other end of that business were the pharmacies in the U.S. Mm -hmm. One was owned by a man named Charles Schultz. He had opened his first pharmacy in 1964 in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, Mm -hmm. and he ran it with his wife. In the 1980s, he got another pharmacy in Monroe, Wisconsin, and in 2006, he got a fax from a company based out of Costa Mesa, California, Hmm. with an enticing business opportunity. It said Alphanet could augment Schultz's in-store sales with online prescriptions without any investment from him. Sounds good. If he became an Alphanet affiliate, 
All he would have to do was log into the company system, fill prescriptions written by American doctors, and ship them using Alphanet's FedEx account. <laughs> He'd then be reimbursed by bank transfer for the wholesale cost of the prescriptions, plus three fifty for each one filled. <laughs> so he wasn't really sure. He was kind of in a tight spot at the time because he just opened like the second a pharmacy and he was kind of like low on funds mm-hmm. but he was kind of like oh this kind of sounds sketchy i don't know so he contacted a recruiter for the company who dispelled all of his doubt alphanet and its dozens of affiliate websites offered a range of prescription medications but its three biggest sellers were ultram soma and fire excuse me <laughs> Furoset? Fioraset. Okay. Fioraset. Okay. <laughs> Ultram was the brand name version of an opioid painkiller called Tramadol. Uh-huh. Soma, also known as Carisoprodol, oh. was a muscle, muscle relaxant often prescribed for back problems. Mm. And Fioraset was used for tension headaches and migraines. Hmm. So Alphanet gave Schultz the number of a former DEA agent in Florida who assured him that none of the medications he would be shipping would cause problems. Hmm. None of them were like controlled substances. They were all like prescriptions. It was fine. So in the summer of 2006, Schultz signed up both of his pharmacies and before long, he was filling thousands of prescriptions a month. Hmm. One day in July of 2010, Schultz Pharmacy filled and shipped 973 prescriptions in a day that is like non-stop packaging ring like counting out pill like yes holy Mm -hmm. shit no lunch break that day (laughs) right and he's getting 350 for each prescription yeah on another in december of 2011 he shipped out 575 prescriptions. So he would later admit that he knew that the volume of prescriptions coming his way strongly implied that doctors weren't really examining the patient's questionnaires thoroughly, but he never heard from any authorities, so he thought it was fine. Yeah, I mean, he literally went to the authorities and they were like, yeah, nothing wrong with that. Go for it. They were like, it's fine. (laughs) Okay. So by the end of 2011, Schultz's two pharmacies had shipped over 700,000 prescriptions. Wow. Oh, my God. Alphanet had wired over $27 million from various accounts in Hong Kong to Schultz's bank. Wow. Most of the money was to cover the wholesale cost of the drugs, but $3.3 million came from the prescription fees, which had had gone up from 350 to $4 per prescription. Wow. So he made $3.3 million in the, what was it, like four, six, five years that he was doing it? Shit, that's pretty, pretty good. Yeah. Then a customer in Minnesota placed a half dozen orders for Soma and Fioraset through five different Alphanet controlled websites between 2007 and 2010. Hmm. The customer's questionnaires were handled by four different doctors whose prescriptions in turn were filled by Schultz Pharmacy and Medicine Mart, which is his other pharmacy. Mm-hmm. That customer was a DEA agent. Whoopsies. In an investigation into a pharmacy in Chicago in 2007, DEA agents had discovered that the business appeared to be shipping large amounts of prescription drugs using one FedEx account. When they obtained records from FedEx, they found something more astounding. 
approximately 100 pharmacies across the country were using that same account number. All of them were predominantly shipping the same three drugs, Fioracet, Ultram, and Soma. Oh, shit. So that fall, agents from the DEA started making undercover or controlled buys of prescription drugs on RX Limited related sites. Helpfully, when each delivery arrived, it came labeled with the doctor who had written the prescription and the pharmacy that had filled it. Hmm. There were dozens of RX Limited websites from which to make controlled buys with names like cheaprxmeds.com, <laughs> allfarmmeds.com, buymedscheap.com. Hmm your-pills.com and speedyrx.com. The agents began in October 2007 with a site called acmemeds.com. An agent logged on as a customer, filled out a questionnaire, and ordered 30 tablets of Soma. The prescription was filled by a pharmacy in Monroe, Wisconsin, owned by Charles Schultz. Oopsies. (laughs) On August 20th, 2009, a large shipment Okay, now we're going to go somewhere else. <laughs> okay, no. so that's happening. So we've got like three different stories happening right now. Mm-hmm. Now we're going to go on to a fourth. Back to 2009. On August 20th, a large shipment of illegal weapons was seized from a ship off the coast of Maravelli's, Philippines. Mm-hmm. On the 19th, a fisherman alerted customs to a suspicious cargo ship anchored near the coast. The ship lacked a national flag, although the word Panama was painted on its hull. Did you say on its they hull? They boarded the sh- hull. Hull. <laughs> hull. Hull. <laughs> on its hull, hell. <laughs> hell, the whole hell. Holy hell. <laughs> so, they boarded the ship, the MV Captain Ufuk. Ufuk? Which looks like Ufuk, <laughs> but without the C. Oh. So I think it's a Ufuk. Ah, oh, it's a Ufuk. It's a Ufuk. And they questioned the captain, who is a South African man named Lawrence John Byrne. He explained the rest of the 13-member crew were from the Republic of Georgia and spoke no English. Convenient. One officer, yeah, one officer noticed 20 large, unmarked wooden crates on deck. In three of the crates, they found 54 assault rifles. Oh, shit. A fourth contained 45 bayonets and 120 empty gun magazines. At least 16 boxes had already been unloaded and gotten by another smaller, other smaller boats. Hmm. So during the interrogation, Byrne revealed that he had very recently taken over for another captain who was a British sailor named Bruce Jones. By the time the port officers had pulled alongside the Ufuk, Jones was long gone, as were 16 crates full of weapons. The guns were bound for a Manila gun dealer called Red, White, and Blue Arms Incorporated. Oh my god. That evening, before the ship was intercepted, a small yacht called the Mu Montai had motored out from a nearby Subic Bay Yacht Club, taken the weapons and Jones aboard, and sped off into the night. The Mu Montai was found a few days later anchored off a remote fishing village. A nationwide manhunt for Jones began. Turns out, He was hiding in a forested area of the mountains above the coast. Jones was a 49-year-old and had come to the Philippines in 1993 from Bristol, England. He was married to a 25-year-old local Mm, named Marisol. You love that. Don't love it. (laughs) Don't love it. 
In August of 2009, a fellow Brit named Dave Smith approached him about sailing a ship from Turkey to Indonesia to the Philippines. A Manila-based company called La Plata Trading would pay for the journey and supply the crew. Smith arranged for Jones to fly to Turkey and purchase the MV Ufuk along with a Georgian crew. He and the crew sailed down the coast of Africa, stopping in Ghana and the Congo before rounding the Cape of Good Hope and heading for Indonesia. At a dock in Jakarta, he picked up the cargo, a shipment of weapons from a company called PT Pindad, and sent out for the Philippines. He was under the impression that the shipment was legitimate, He had been supplied with an end-user certificate, which is a document in the arms trade establishing legitimate destination for a weapons purchase, Mm. indicating that the guns were meant for a buyer in Mali. Around 50 Indonesian police and soldiers supervised the pickup, and the gun sales had actually been approved by the Indonesian Ministry of Defense. Hmm. So it all seemed legit. As Jones piloted the ship towards Bataan, however, he got a call from the owner of La Plata Trading, a man he had never met, telling him to delay bringing the ship into port. The next day, he was told to steer the ship closer to Subic Bay and wait to dock. Days went by and Jones began to worry. His wife was super pregnant Hmm. and he couldn't be on the boat any longer. He needed to be with his wife. So he told the owner that he wanted to get off. That night, the speed, a speedboat came and got him and the 16 crates. After the ship was seized, he was labeled as the brains behind the operation, Ooh. and he fled to the mountains because he got scared. Yeah. He eventually surrendered to the Bureau of Custom- Customums? <laughs> Customs. In February of 2010, the Philippine government charged 37 people, burned in the entire Georgian crew, plus Jones, with illegally bringing the guns to the Philippines. But the indictment also covered the owners of La Plata Trading and Red, White, and Blue Arms, mm. including David Smith, a.k.a. Dave Smith, mm-hmm. Michael T. Archangel, and one Johan, a.k.a. John Paul LaRue. Mm. On the morning of September 21st, 2010, a year since Joan had told investigators what he knew, he drove his wife and son to Marquee Mall in Angel City. There they met a friend, an American named John Nash, for lunch, along with Nash's wife. At 2 p.m., the group departed from lunch, Jones and his wife in their gray Mitsubishi Lancer, and Nash following a few minutes behind. They planned to meet up in a nearby Mountain Clark firing range. Hmm. As the car turned down Don Jose Street, 100 feet from the entrance to the gun range, a red Honda XRM motorcycle pulled up behind it, with two men in helmets riding in tandem. As the vehicle approached a speed bump, the motorcycle zoomed in front, blocking the car's path. Hmm. The man on the back leaped off, approached the car, and fired into the driver's side window. Oh, shit. The gunman climbed back on the motorcycle, and the men sped off in the direction from which they had come. Fuck. Jones was hit multiple times, and one bullet passed through his body and struck Marcel in the back. Hmm. He fell over on top of her, vomiting blood. Oh, shit. Marcel froze, terrified, then opened the door and climbed out. She frantically called Nash, who raced down Don Jose to where the Lancer was parked, pulled Marcel and her son into his car, and drove to the hospital. The baby was unhurt, and the doctors quickly stabilized Marcel. Mm. 
Jones died slumped across the passenger seat. Damn. On a late Friday afternoon in 2014, John Nash was headed down a narrow beachside road in Barrett. Suddenly, an SUV appeared in front of him, blocking his path. The NBI, which is the Philippines Bureau of Investigation, mm-hmm. had begun pursuing Nash as a person of interest in the disappearance of a good friend of his and Jones's lawyer. They ran his American passport with the U.S. Embassy in Manila. Turns out he was using an expired passport that belonged to a deceased person. Ooh, shit. They had no idea who he was or where he was from. So Nash remains in NBI custody, a man without a name or country, and no one has ever been arrested in the murders of Bruce Jones or in the disappearance of the lawyer, Joe Frank Zuninga. Hmm. They have no idea who the fuck this guy is. Of the men involved in the Ufuk incident, LaRue was closest to Dave Smith. He was a British native and he had done security work in Iraq and then for a risk management company in the Philippines. He allegedly carried an American passport. LaRue had hired Smith sometime before 2008 and elevated him to a kind of all-purpose deputy and conciliary trusted to coordinate gold shipments around Africa or arrange for the dispatch of an inconvenient person. Oh. It was Smith who, in 2009, stood over Moran Oz floating in the water off Subic Bay and threatened to kill him. Hmm. So the pieces are coming together. People like Smith gave LaRue access to a network of international security contractors that span the globe after the contractor-aided wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Recruits could be involved in anything from protecting smuggled shipments to arranging the transfer of sex workers used to bribe governments... Government officials in Papua New Guinea. So, in the years after the Ufuk incident, there was talk that Smith had started skimming off the drugs and gold that he was transporting for LaRue. He was pissed off because he wasn't really making much money and he was doing so much traveling all around Mm -hmm. and he was the second in command. So, at some point, LaRue got wind of it. So, Smith was picked up outside a bar. He was drunk. He was thrown into a van. He was possibly placed in a shallow grave and given a telephone. Then Paul LaRue was on the other end, and he said, you see what happens? And then they shot him and buried him. What? There's another story that says that the same thing that happened to Oz happened to him, except for he was actually shot. So he was thrown off a boat and shot. Huh. Well, I mean, no wonder... Anyway, I don't think they know where his body is, but he's dead. No wonder none of these have been investigated or whatever. Sounds like they have enough money to pay anyone off. For sure. Uh. So, during the period between 2007 and 2011, LaRue's businesses had begun expanding simultaneously into logging, precious metals mining, gold smuggling, land deals, cocaine shipping, and arms dealing. Wow. These activities were spread across dozens of shell companies registered all over the world. Hmm. Israelis associated with the call centers in Tel Aviv were deployed to run international logging operations. They recruited their friends who were dispatched to Hong Kong to guard houses full of gold or to Brazil to set up front companies. Those involved in the pharmacy operations showed up in businesses connected to arms trafficking or money laundering. Shit. In 2010, the United Nations Security Council set an investigative team into Somalia to assess the country's instability and its epidemic of sea piracy. The team, which was led by a Frenchman, I I cannot pronounce his name. (laughs) 
<laughs> Try it. Okay. Aurelian? 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 Lorca. That does not sound French at all. How dare you make me try that? That was embarrassing. I've already tried to handle this whole story. You may try it. Okay. So, uh, they reported several dire findings. Among them, a troubling rise in military involvement by private securities companies, Mm -hmm. including a previously unknown outfit called Southern Ace. Hmm. Southern Ace had begun operating in central Somalia in 2009 presenting itself as traders and importers of fishery products in Hong Kong. Ah. In actuality, Southern Ace began recruiting a local militia and arming it with AK-47s, grenade launchers, and truck-mounted heavy machine guns. Are you sure they weren't just fish and fish They weren't just fishermen. (laughs) Fish and fish For the fishery. (laughs) They also imported uniforms, flak jackets, and radios from the Philippines. Hmm. It was owned by one Paul Calder LaRue, also known as Bernard John Bolins. Well, that's not the same name at all. So, at this point, we're like halfway through. Are you keeping track? I'm barely keeping track. There's all these dead people... Threatening all these bad guys, being bad, being like, we're in charge. Yes. Don't cross us. So I will. You'll end up like this other person. Okay. Is it becoming clear who's in charge here, though? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So the militia LaRue had backed was entangled in an ongoing war between local pastoral nomads and another clan. In November 2010, a battle involving LaRue's troops raged for several days, causing allegedly heavy casualties from both sides. A battle? Yes. Rumor had it that LaRue was planning to invade the Maldives, which is an island nation in the Indian Ocean. What? But he may have actually intended to set up a kind of private security company on the shore of Somalia in one of the most pirate-infested areas to establish a base and then get money from shipping companies to disrupt the attacks from pirates. And then become the best pirate. The (laughs) the biggest pirate ever. Yeah, he'd probably be like, I'll stop the pirates from stealing from you because I'm going to steal from you first. Yeah, he's got to assert his pirate dominance. That's right. So when the project failed... LaRue's local contact in Somalia then set up a company called Galsum Limited, which operated on the Southern Ace compound and began experimenting with the cultivation of hallucinogenic plants, including opium, coca, and cannabis. I wish there were hallucinogenic pants. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds dangerous. You put on these pants and you just like start tripping. Yeah, but then you can just take them off and you won't be tripping anymore. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but then, I mean, what if you accidentally put them on? It doesn't kick in for, like, an hour. You're, like, you know, at your suck. work, and you're, like, oh, shit, I gotta take these pants off right now. That is a risk that you have to take. Yes, well, hopefully they're brightly colored and obvious. Galsum imported greenhouses, herbicides, and farming equipment from around the world, and LaRue had stated that he wanted to start a cocaine plantation in Somalia, which sounds like a bad idea to me, but that's just me. Uh, 
I mean, I guess he's got the militia to guard. Yeah, it, so it sounds it's not like, like he that, has a yeah. whole army and like money to just pay people off. So, however, mm-hmm. after spending several million dollars in mid 2010, he abandoned whatever he was going to do in Somalia because he had been. F- he found out that he'd been duped into paying his militiamen three hundred dollars per month, which really they were only getting one fifty a month what? through other people. So he was like paying them double. So he's like, "Fuck you guys! You've cheated me <gasps> out of like one hundred and fifty dollars a month. Oh, so I'm going to abandon no. several million dollars." Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So clearly, ego. You know. Yeah, you don't you don't cross him, or you get it. No, you don't charge him double. No. For what other people are getting. That's bullshit. $150 a month. Big deal. Okay. Around 2011, LaRue began to disappear for long stretches of time. None of his high-level employees knew where he was or what he was doing. Only that when he resurfaced, he would be more threatening than before. Uh The fact that he went underground was scarier, the Israeli call center manager said. When he was overground, you could talk to him. But when he came back, it was unreasonable. He was so angry, and the questions he was asking didn't make sense. He would just explode. Whatever he said, you said, okay, okay, and then hoped that he would forget it. Ah, so he's taken some of his drugs. So around that time, the U.S. government declared distribution of the drug Soma across state lines illegal. Mm. One third of the company's business evaporated overnight. That hurts. In the four-year period leading up to 2011, RX Limited had shipped $300 million worth of drugs. Wow. Holy shit. LaRue decided to close the Tel Aviv office and move all customer service to the Philippines. Oz and Berkman helped unwind the operations, shipping the computers and office furniture to Manila. The process lasted into 2012 when LaRue announced that he was downsizing the Jerusalem logistics office as well. He told Oz that the company had lost its credit card processing service and needed to scale back further. Uh Meanwhile, LaRue designated a new point man in the Philippines for the Israeli companies to communicate with. A Filipino whom Oz and Berkman had never met and only knew him by his online handle, Persian Cat. Oh my god. <laughs> I so wish that it was... Oh, what was the cat? The evil cat from um, Rescue Rangers? I know. I was, just the, I was just picturing him when you were saying it. I was picturing him. Oh my god. I don't know. This... Kate, this dude doesn't come up again, I don't think, but I just had to put it in because I thought that was amazing. Cat. Persian oh cat. I know I can hear his voice too, God, right? I think in Israel, when you have like severance pay or whatever, you're supposed to legally you have to pay at least two thirds of that to people. So I guess Larue kind of just like went off the map and didn't pay like his people. And then Oz was like, "You have to get these people their money. Like you really have to." And then so eventually he gave him two thirds to give to all the people who had been hired, but he like kept. Like, the people were like, you have to give us more. Like, this isn't enough. We need, like, our full pay, basically. And they were, like, hounding Oz, who felt, like, super responsible because a lot of them got their jobs through, like, him being like, hey, like, there's this great job. So he, like, kept trying to get that money back from LaRue so he could pay off all the people. And he was, like, in a really tough spot. And then LaRue would, like, disappear so we would have, like, no contact with him. So um, now we're going to go back to the U.S. Before we go back to the U.S. Yeah. 
Fat Cat. His name is Fat Cat. Oh, Fat Cat. <laughs> Persian Cat. Fat Cat. That's right. That was good. Good memory. No, I looked it up. <laughs> <laughs> of course it's Fat Cat. That's so basic. <laughs> also, I want to say about that when people are like, oh, my cat's so fat. Ha ha. It's like, no, you are like killing your cat. Yeah. Stop overfeeding cats, please. It's not cute. It's like disturbing. They shouldn't be obese. <laughs> they shouldn't be fat cats. They should not. Okay. That's my PSA for the day. Please stop overfeeding your cats. <laughs> I know they're cute and they're like hungry all the time, but I feel like I'm hungry all the time too. And I just like don't eat all day. <laughs> Some days I do, but let's, you know, it's not about me. It's about the cats. <laughs> stop looking at me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Anyway. So. Back in the United States. Yeah. I have control over how much I eat. The cats don't. <laughs> like if you feed them, they're going to eat it. I'm just like, <laughs> okay. So back to the United States. <laughs> Are you following? Is this all yes, making I'm sense? Following. No? Yeah. Okay, good. Uh-huh. Okay. Okay. <laughs> the red yarns it's are like connected. It's like really riveting. You have to read this person's like seven part series. It's so riveting. <sighs> I I got a lot of this like directly from him, but it's worth it to read it. I'm telling you. Uh-huh. He like went to the Philippines and like interviewed people. He did wow. the work. Oh my God. Oh, I'm like shit. dying of it's heat It's so hot. Right now. <laughs> okay. It's so hot. Okay. So. In March of 2012, the DEA showed up at Schultz Pharmacy in Oshkosh, armed with... Also, remember Oshkosh Bagosh? I do remember Oshkosh Bagosh. I think it's still a thing. Is it still a company? (laughs) Oh. I remember being little and being like, what? Oshkosh Bagosh? Like... (laughs) All my clothes are Oshkosh Bagosh. Yeah, all our 30 sets of overalls. (laughs) Yes. With the cute cute prints. Uh Uh-huh. Okay, so DEA (laughs) arrives in Oshkosh, armed with search warrants. Schultz immediately admitted his involvement and handed over his computer and records, obviously, because he didn't think he was doing anything wrong. He also agreed to maintain his relationship with Alphanet contacts, and he let the agents record his phone calls. He gave the agents a room to set up in his pharmacy, and he gave them coffee. So he is like, let's get these people. I'm on your side. Hmm. By early 2012, authorities in the U.S. began closing in on LaRue's operations. That spring, he exchanged his haven in the Philippines with his established routines, paid for police protection, and network of employees for a new home base in Rio de Janeiro. Hmm. Soon after he arrived, he set about generating new business. The first involved a boat transporting $120 million of cocaine from Peru to a buyer on the other side of the Pacific. Holy As shit. he finalized the arrangements of the shipment, another lucrative offer presented itself. Mm-hmm. A trusted associate of LaRue's contacted him to say that he had met a representative of a Colombian cartel that wanted to build a large-scale methamphetamine operation in Liberia. Okay. Wow. What? I mean, if you're shipping $120 million of cocaine from Peru, like, why not set up a Liberian meth ring? I don't know. Meth ring. (laughs) (laughs) On May 11th, LaRue's associate flew to Rio for a meeting. The Colombians wanted prosecutors, oh, sorry, wanted uh, precursor chemicals, sorry, a facility and a chemist for making meth. In exchange, they would supply him with cocaine. So they're like, we want to do a meth ring. We don't even know how to do it. We'll trade you cocaine for meth. like, I just want cocaine. Like, we got this. That's great. Best deal ever. 
Okay. (laughs) Sounds good. Yes. So the Colombians requested a sample of the product. LaRue could help them create. A week later, he gave them uh, his bank account number. They gave him some money. And then he sent out 24 grams of meth. Uh, he sent the samples to Liberia and gave him a tracking number. The Colomb- I mean, if this is all FedEx, it's like, Jesus Christ, it can't be, right? Like, fuck. Okay. They're just, like, sending shit through the mail. Yeah. It's fine. Yeah. Okay, the Colombians tested the meth and found that it was, like, nearly 100% pure. They're like, fucking yes, let's do this. We'll give you 100. You give us 100 kilos of meth. We'll give you 100 kilos of cocaine. Done deal. So... All that was required to complete the deal was that LaRue needed to travel to Liberia to meet with the cartel representative. So he got a commercial flight to Monrovia, which is the capital of Liberia, and then he got there on September 25th, 2012. So let's take a pause and let's figure out who the fuck this guy is. Right? Go. So (laughs) Paul LaRue was born on Christmas Eve in 1972. At Lady Rodwell Maternity Home in Bulawayo, Zimbabwe. Okay. He was immediately given up for adoption, and his name on his birth certificate was listed as unknown. There is also no father on the birth certificate. Mm -hmm. His bio mom's mom may have been married to a U.S. senator. Uh, Rumor has it. (laughs) We don't know who, but... So... At the bottom of the birth certificate, it stated, child to be known in future as Paul Calder LaRue. What? (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. So, when he was two months old, he was adopted by a couple living in Mashava, which is an asbestos mining town. Oh, no. His parents never told him that he was adopted. And he had a younger sister and a very loving family. His whole extended family accepted him. Everyone loved him. Uh It was great. In 1984, his family moved to South Africa so that Paul, 12 at the time, could go to better schools and get a good education. Because his mom's like, I want, you're like super smart. You need to get a good education. We're moving. Mm -hmm. So they moved to a town called Krugersdorp. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and his dad started his own company managing coal mining operations. So soon the family had money. Okay. The story goes that he got his very first computer in exchange for washing his dad's car. Okay. So at least he had to work for uh, it, right? He earned uh, it. He washed that car, he got his computer. As a teen, he was described as tall, trim, and handsome. Mm-hmm. And he was not super social. And he was not really into sports, which all the other guys were. Uh And he was obsessed with computers and this video game called Wing Commander, Uh where you were like a helicopter or like a pilot or something, and you'd like fly around. You're either a helicopter or a pilot of a helicopter. Either way, you fly around. (laughs) (laughs) You're not the helicopter. You are a pilot of a helicopter or an airplane or something. I don't know. I read it, and I was kind of like, I don't care. So I didn't include (laughs) it. After he got his first computer, he became extremely antisocial. Mm-hmm. All he ever did was sit in his room on his computer. Yep. When he was 15 or 16, he was arrested for selling porn. Oh. Uh, I don't know what the rules are in South Africa, but I guess their their house was raided by the police. They found out he was, like, selling pornography, and mm. the whole family was, like, super scandalized. Mm-hmm. But they were able to keep it quiet. Uh, but that whole, like, 
um, arrest and charge and everything made him even more isolated. He, like, really hungered down and was not, like, not around anyone. He also dropped out of school at 16, even though he was an amazing student. Uh-huh. And he left, apparently, because he didn't want to learn Afrikaans, which was mandatory in South Africa, because he said it was a dead language and he didn't want to learn it. So he oh. didn't. So, okay. So he's like, peace out. I don't need you school because I don't want to learn a language. And he was extremely racist. Sounds like a sounds like an excuse. I know, because he just wanted to be on his computer all day, right? Yeah, well, it sounds like he was probably bored. Like, he sounds like he's smarter than yeah. average and was just, like, bored. Like, I'm not, I can learn more on my computer and I can do all this. I can make money. Well, also, <laughs> he's super racist. Ah, so that's why I didn't want to learn Africa. I think that's, yeah, I think that's part of it. Okay. So he uh, enrolled in a computer programming course where he excelled and finished Mm -hmm. the one-year course in eight weeks. Yeah, damn. Like I said, it sounds like he's pretty (laughs) creepy, mad scientist intelligent. The family lore has it that after he spent one class explaining some technical fact to the teacher, he got a letter saying he no longer needed to attend. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, well, he knows all he needs to know. He's good to go. He knows more than I do. Fuck, he's good. Okay. So when he was 17, his family went on vacation to the U.S. They did, like, the Disneyland thing. They did, like, they did it up, and it was great. Mm -hmm. And after that, he was like, fuck this. I'm not living here anymore in South Africa. And then he moved to the U.K. all by himself. When he got to the airport, his bags were too heavy to check. So he was like, fuck this. I don't need any of this. And he just took his programming books and left his clothes and everything else behind at the airport. What? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, from the UK, he moved to the US, and he lived in Virginia Beach. In 1994, he met a woman named Michelle, and he followed her to Australia. There they got married, and then he became an Australian citizen. Okay. From there, he would post really awful things in forums, and he was a troll, an Uh internet troll. His posts were so outraged... Oh, his posts were, like, so fucking offensive on these boards... That someone even changed their handle to fuck at you dot Paul. Because <laughs> he sucked. Wow. He was angry. He was sarcastic. He was offensive. And he just tried to rile everyone up. He was like a real dick. Hmm. He often wrote disparaging things about Australia, his new home. Like, quote, as I recall, the genetic effects of human inbreeding are not as disastrous as those of breeding with animals. Oh, shit. A lesson Australians have never learned. What the fuck? He was also super racist. He said things like, people like you should be rounded up, castrated, then shot. Oh, my That he wrote in response to someone who accused him of being racist for saying that Asians should be screened out of the country for DNA defects. What? Yeah, this dude sucks. What? The <laughs> what? <laughs> oh my god. Ew. So far, there's no real reason for his anger. Not at all. Okay. He is from an extremely loving family. He he was just like super isolated and, you know, he was just born bad, I guess. I don't know. 
I don't know, though. If he's, like, in, isolating himself and only on the computer and people yes. that have, like, mindsets can rile themselves up on online. Yes. And and this is, like, the beginning of the internet. And yeah. they're, like, this is, like, the time where people are like, oh, I can be a troll. This is fucking amazing. I can just be, like, a real dick and no one knows who I am or where I am. Like, uh-huh. I don't have to confront anyone. I can just do it all from, like, the safety of my room. And not only that, but I can get a group of people that are going to egg me on or are going to encourage me or, like, yeah. have the same ideals that I do and then yeah and also i'm like really super smart and i think i'm super smart so mm-hmm. so he used four different email addresses in his posts two of them traced predominantly to his trollish screen screeds oh to his like trolls troll postings mm-hmm. but two highly technical encryption discussions on other boards so two were like actually legit professional all about like encryption stuff Mm -hmm. and then two were just him being a dick (laughs) one of those emails was connected to a software company called sw professionals that same address turned up in the documentation for the encryption software e4m which was encryption for the masses what? In 1995, <laughs> what the fuck does any of that just mean? I'll get to it. Okay, so in 1995, he started a business called World Away PTY. In 1997, he began to develop E4M, encryption for the masses. Mm. It was first released on December 18th, 1995, and it was capable of encrypting an entire hard drive and to conceal the existence of encrypted files. So you could encrypt everything and there would be no trace of anything being encrypted. Huh. Okay. That's pretty Fucking dope. amazing. Yeah. yeah. Super amazing. <laughs> so after two years of development, he released it to the world. He released the software free of charge because he believed that encryption was the only way to preserve civil liberties. Hmm. He was saying that, like, the development of the Internet, the government is, like, like increasing basically their spyware along with the Internet. They're going to know everything about you. He felt like the encryption was the only way to protect yourself. Well, which, it's true. Yeah. yeah. Fucking that's genius, what, right? Like, yeah. You- yeah. So that's why he did it for free, which is amazing. Yeah. But because he spent two years developing this software and released it for free, in 1999, he was super broke and he and his wife divorced. There's some things that say like their divorce is amicable and other things say it was like a violent divorce, which I don't know what that means. Well, I mean, if he's like really this piece of shit, unless she's some kind of dumb angel, it's like, (laughs) it's probably kind of volatile. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, yeah, he's like sitting at home on his computer for like two years, not doing anything. And she's like, dude, I need help with the bills. And he's like, fuck, the government's going to get us. We need to like encrypt everything. And she's like, I don't know what any of that means. <laughs> okay, so in 1999. Oh, I said that. So they got divorced. Mm-hmm. Then he moved to Hong Kong. And then from Hong Kong, he moved to Rotterdam, where he married a Dutch citizen named Lillian Chang Yuen Pui. Pui. And at, soon after they got married, they had a son together. Wow, he just moves around, like, not just like, oh, he I'm gonna move moves down the street. Everywhere. I'm gonna move to a whole I, other country. I'm not gonna lie, I super admire that. <laughs> kind of jealous. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He just relocates like, no, like nothing. Mm-hmm. Although when you're, like, living in your room in front of a computer, it doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter where you are. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, to monetize E4M, he launched SW Professionals in 2000. 
Based in South Africa, the company offered offshore programming, including E4M customization. Hmm. According to its website, it had five to six employees. LaRue himself was reportedly rarely seen in South Africa and was still in a precarious financial situation. So he launched his company there. He had, like, employees there, but he, like, he, like, didn't go. <laughs> he was like, fuck it. I'm, like, running this company from abroad, bitches. I'm not trying to go to South yeah. Africa. Well, I mean, and you're you're a computer person who's a, use, like literally using the internet for all this stuff, so you know how to communicate via internet before most people were doing that. <laughs> right? Yes. So, we are going to pause, and I'm going to do a two-parter because I still have, like, a bunch left. Thanks for hanging in there. I hope it's made sense so far. I, I it's know. a lot to take in, it's a but lot. I understand it's, it's a whole world of organized crime. Yes. And it's very convoluted. It's, it's a lot of moving yes. parts, a lot of countries, a lot of people. So A lot of countries. Holy yes, shit. Yes. Which, like I said, I kind of admire, but, you know, not really. Okay. <laughs> so if you are having trouble keeping up, maybe listen again, take some notes, do your whole, like, <laughs> evidence board. Do your evidence yeah. because mm-hmm. it's about to get crazy. Do your homework. Uh, um, yeah. So this episode's so, already, like, a million hours long. We're going to do a quick crime any sakes and then tune in next week for the conclusion of this crime boss's boss life. Boss life. Okay. Um, yeah, okay. So, so crime and say. And now for the portion that we like to call crime and sakes, where we tell you silly stories about crime that make you forget the terrible things we just told you. Do you want to go first? Yeah, okay. I got this from the New York Post. A Michigan man... Michigan was caught uh-huh. by cops as he allegedly urinated on a police car in Florida. Oh. <laughs> An officer apparently threw the cuffs on him even before he was finished, a report said. Oh, no. <laughs> the defendant was taken into custody while still in the commission of the crime. The ah. affidavit for the arrest of David Marcel Lewis Johnson, 26 what the- notes. S- Excuse me, was that his name? Yeah, David Marcel Lewis Johnson. Okay, wow. The Marcel Lewis is hyphenated. That makes a difference. I don't understand. I guess that's how you get like like three last names. I don't know. (laughs) So Johnson was busted around 1 a.m. February 8th as he relieved himself on the bumper of a sergeant's squad car in downtown St. Petersburg, (laughs) according to the arrest affidavit, which was obtained by the smoking gun. Johnson, who lives outside of Detroit, was uncooperative with questioning. The affidavit also said he has pled not guilty to disorderly conduct and was freed after a relative posted his $250 cash bond. (laughs) <laughs> yeah i mean i'd say worth it i mean 50 bucks to pee on a cop car <laughs> you kind of let him finish peeing it's like not safe yeah. to hold in your urine everyone pee when you need to and pee. then he's just like hanging out there while his yes! hands are behind his back and of course just, he's gonna like, keep rude. peeing <laughs> he's gotta go <laughs> you gotta go <laughs> can't have bladder infections oh, you cannot utis are serious Mm-mm. business they can cause kidney yeah. infections it's bad and really, all you have to do is just go. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. 
kind yeah. of jealous. Yeah. Um, All right. Not, no, yeah. don't okay. pee on cop cars. No. <laughs> uh-uh. <laughs> um, I got this one from WTFFlorida.com. Oh, again. Yeah. Florida. <laughs> This one says, a Florida woman seen bicycling topless down the center of Highway 98 turned out to turned out to be a shoplifting suspect making her get away. That's so obvious. 23-year-old Elizabeth Backus was spotted by an uh, Okaloosa county sheriff's deputy thursday night (laughs) according to the arrest affidavit collected by abc3 she was riding her bike down the center of highway 98 on okaloosa island the deputy pulled her aside and told bacchus to stop make me she replied (laughs) the deputy pulled in front of her yeah obviously he can make you (laughs) and bacchus tried to pedal past her escape her attempted escape was a failure Earlier that evening at Surfside Outfitters on Miracle Strip Parkway, Bacchus reportedly stole a pair of flip-flops and something else. Uh, what <laughs> else? Flip-flops are not enough. I know. I think it was a sh- it was a shirt. Uh, the that she was not off- wearing clearly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. She called <laughs> obviously didn't take it. <laughs> The sheriff's office received several calls about a woman wearing wearing a woman weaving her bike in the middle of the highway. At one point, she removed her top. Oh. The stolen T-shirt was valued at twenty five dollars. Bacchus was <laughs> she was arrested and charged with two counts of larceny, petite theft, second degree, Cute. first offense. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Two counts of a, of resisting an officer and obstruction without a vehicle. Man, they just like added everything on there. She got a twenty five dollar t shirt and like five dollar flip flops. Big fucking and deal. To be honest, like if she put on that shirt, she must not have had one. So oh, you know, yes. she must have needed the shirt and flip flops. It's did not like she, she walked just... into. Okay, wait. Did she walk in the store topless? Because that's such a spectacle too. Like riding your bicycle on the highway and walking into stores topless. Girl, they didn't say they didn't look into it. I mean, get your life together. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think she was barefoot too? Was she wearing the flip flops? It didn't say, but oh my god, I need to know. I need to know (laughs) because they say no shoes, no shirt, no service. So she obviously couldn't buy it, she had to steal it. She didn't have shoes or a shirt. Oh, they weren't gonna service her, they were not gonna service her. She had to service herself. <laughs> All right. Well, oh thanks my god. For... Speaking of service yourself, did oh. I tell you about out at work the other day? We have like a shoe department, and this woman walks in, looks around, and goes, "Is this like a self-service shoe department?" What is that? That's so we're like, what the fuck? Like, what I think she that? was used to. I think she was used to going to places where like. You tell, you look around and you're like, oh, I want that one in a size eight. And then the person like runs to the back and grabs you a shoe and like helps you put it on and measure your foot and all that shit. No, self-service sounds like Target where you go and find your own fucking size of shoe. (laughs) That's exactly what it is here. They're at my job. (laughs) Yeah, that is self-service. It's like, okay, the boxes are out. Clearly it's self-service. Serve yourself. Get your shoe. And then she made her boyfriend. She sat in the chair and made her boyfriend or husband or whatever find her go shoes around for her? and collect Shut the shoes up. and bring them over oh and God. put put them on her <gasps> feet how are people like this in relationships no. what 
Unless you had a foot thing, then maybe it's like good for both of them. Oh, but oh my god, that is true. I didn't think that angle. Also, when you were younger, didn't you love those metal foot things? They were so cool. The measurer. Yes. And it would like tickle your foot. Yes. <laughs> I fucking love those. Maybe I'll get one for myself. Now that I'm an adult, I could probably find one, right? Just measuring your foot all day, yes. every day. <laughs> Oh, it seems to be a little bigger today. Interesting. <laughs> hmm. Must be the heat. I'm swelling up like a balloon. Well, that way, if you ever buy shoes online, you're like, I know the exact size of my foot. Thank you very much. <laughs> I have a foot measure. Christmas is coming up. Yeah, that was always exciting. I loved it. So cool. Anyway, anyway, thanks for tuning in. Yeah, for another episode. Rate, review, subscribe, and all that. We'll be back next week with another episode for you. Part two of a two-parter. Yeah, and who knows what will come out of my mouth. Yeah, good <laughs> luck remembering what I talked about. <laughs> Seriously gonna have to re-listen to that before. Yeah, that was a lot. Okay. All right. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That she slyly chucked a sham out.